Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. Sorry, I haven't done a COVID update show in a while. Also, uh, mentioned some of the um, vax hesitant, um, clickbait, uh, popular podcasts out there spreading a lot of disinformation. Um, and since that time, uh, Joe Rogan has done uh, uh, another um, a big uh, episode with Robert Malone, the inventor of all of science himself. If you'd like to know a little more about the tangled history of the mRNA vaccine, there's an article in Nature. It's called The Tangled History of the mRNA Vaccines, which uh, Robert Malone was one of hundreds of people um, and is quite openly bitter about not getting um, the credit he believes he deserves um, from some uh, of his thoughts and work on the progress of the mRNA vaccine in 1987. Experience, which uh, is not a science show, um, by the way. It's not meant to be. Uh, we're both doing the same thing we've always done. I've been randomly um, since for eight years now, before COVID, I've been uh, you know, traveling around the world randomly. Oh, oh, I'm here. I look up this university. Oh, sure. Okay. I book that here. See what they do. I reach into a mixed bag of of science and see what a researcher does next week. I'm having a butterfly episode, not because I think that there's an overwhelming desire for people to hear about the science of butterflies. I have nothing in my mind. That's like, Whoa, if I put out a butterfly episode, boy, people are going to be clamoring for that. And I'll get a bunch of clicks and then, then I'll, I'll get to be famous and get a bunch of money because I did the science of butterflies. I do it because I enjoy learning about this stuff. And I started this as a hobby and I've just continued doing what I'm doing. And Joe Rogan's continuing to do what he did long before COVID, which is to have uh, fringe controversial um, figures on his show, representing it like the other side and, uh, you know, gaining all of the rewards of that and eliminating any accountability by every time he's wrong. I'm just a dumb comic. What do I know? Whoopsies. <laughs> and so that's just what Joe does. Um, you know, sorry, I've been on the show. I know I have a lot of uh, listeners from the Rogan experience and, uh, you know, I appreciate that you're here. Um, no, I'm not jealous of Joe Rogan. I'll take his money, but I have no interest in interviewing MMA people or celebrities or, you know, I'm not, I could do a TMZ celebrity show or something like that. If, if I wanted to reach out and try to interview celebrity, I have zero interest in that. I do wish, uh, this show is more popular. I wish this is a more popular science podcast, but I'm super happy. Here's the top for any, anyone that does a 
better job than me at communicating science or gains any traction for doing it. I'm so thankful. I want to live in a world that's more scientifically literate. So here's, I just Googled top 10 science podcasts um, that uh, if, if you don't like this show, or even if you do, you might want to check out and hopefully they do a better job than I do even. And I hope you find something even better than this at, at science communication. And I hope when you find that you spread it far and wide, uh, with people, because right now what's spreading around is a bunch of gossip and misinformation that's catering to people's faulty intuitions, telling them what they want to hear stories of this is all made up or this is in denial or there's things plotting against us that's at the root of i know it sounds more sophisticated they're not really saying that that's at the root of everything <coughs> being said by people like joe rogan and russell brand and and various people um doing these uh conspiracy things and no um diet and exercise is not doing anything different um, than what it was already, you were always supposed to be doing that stuff, but it's not the full picture. Bats don't get wiped out by a new fungus because they weren't in CrossFit. Trees don't get a thousand cankers uh, when someone brings in firewood from uh, hundreds of miles away and introduces a new species of, of beetles uh, because uh, the trees don't uh, that have a unsuspecting welcome house in these trees. Uh, the trees aren't susceptible to that because they have failed to do enough jujitsu or weren't doing enough supplements that, by the way, are incredibly profitable. And Joe Rogan does ads for supplements and stuff on every single episode, makes a fortune off of those alternative, alternative medicines that are quite well known for being pseudoscience. So a little bit of incentive there. Just eating some trail mix before I started this. <laughs> now I have a scratch in my throat. Here's 10, uh, the top 10 science podcasts. It's just the first thing that pulled up when I Googled it. Uh, ologies, heard great things about that. I don't listen to other podcasts myself, but um, cinema science, stuff to blow your mind, science versus radio lab, Super Women in Science, DNA Today, The Story Collider, Hidden Brain, Science Friday. Check out all of them. I hope they're awesome. I bet they are. Um, science is great. So check those out. Um, and I guess I'll just have to do like a solo episode or something um, talking about Joe Rogan's experience. And what, what his experience actually is, because I know he has smart sounding people that can peddle word salad to validate whatever he already believes. Catering to, uh, you know, this is what you there are certain things that you do. If you write a book, there are certain things that you do to say, get on Oprah or Good Morning America or Joe Rogan. There's certain demographics. There's certain ways in which you can angle that to get publicity to get on certain things and sometimes some stuff slips through that might not be necessarily in the best interests of science literacy so much as it is just kind of ratings driven and this is the way of the world so if you have questions in this episode at all 
um, this podcast that is 100% paid for by your Patreon support. So I don't need to peddle uh, nonsense pseudoscience. And it's totally up to you if you feel like doing that and supporting uh, this uh, passion of mine. Um, but uh, it, anyone that wants to go on, uh, go on YouTube, see how, uh, you know, if this clickbait's working out for me, anyone that wants to go on my tiny little YouTube channel on this humble show and ask any questions in good faith, I'll go and get random scientists. Just like you can look up just your local university, I'll bet money on it. Look up your local university um, and just look at the infectious disease department. Pick someone randomly. Ask them if they're vaccinated. Ask them if their children are vaccinated. Uh, And because I know how every random scientist uh, is approaching this, I know how seriously they are taking this. In fact, the guests on Joe Rogan peddling catering to his vaccine hesitancy are themselves vaccinated. Uh, Robert Malone and Peter McCullough, who works for a professional anti-vax organization, they themselves are vaccinated. Wouldn't you find it suspicious if you found out that I was pro-vaccine but not vaccinated myself and all of my guests were pro-vaccine but not vaccinated themselves? But see... It, does, it would take a whole coordinated effort to get every scientist in the entire world to pay off all of them. What would you have to do? Double their salary to get every single one and then not one person. Everyone's keeping a lid on it. But it takes no conspiracy whatsoever for any just wellness podcast or whatever else. Or you go to your local chiropractor and they say, you don't need a... Uh, you don't need a vaccine. You need to come in every week and get your spine aligned by me because it communicates with your immune system. And like, whoa, whoa, I didn't know that about the immune system. And then they toss a bunch of word salad. Oh, well, you know, there's this terroir thing that was actually before the modern medicine, blah, blah, blah. And you don't know any better. It, it takes no conspiracy. Anyone can do that because it's not regulated it's not subject to peer review and then they can uh one of the grifts is is that you can put out a pre-published paper so a paper that's being submitted to a journal but hasn't been accepted so you get like a lot of these vitamin things or whatever and they put out uh wellness organizations they pay for a study and they put out something that to any uh to anyone else's eyes other than scientists, you know, it looks like any regular old study, but it, it's pre-published. It hasn't been accepted and it hasn't been peer reviewed. And they're like, look at this groundbreaking thing that they can literally write anything in it and get on any news platform or any podcaster thing. And they just write the one that caters to the demographic of people that they're trying to uh, find. So keep an eye out for that and it's often the case that you're like well this person i trust them i trust their judgment and they mean that i i wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these uh people 
genuinely believe what they were say uh, what they are saying it doesn't mean that they aren't wrong <laughs> they aren't working within uh making things falsifiable and replicatable they're just saying like oh this worked for me or i believe that and then uh just like well just asking questions Hey, I'm just asking questions. Joe Rogan's always like, but I'm just a dumb comic. Don't listen to me. Except always listen to me. Oh, except, but I don't want any liability. So don't listen to me. Oh, check out. Th this is the most important thing you'll ever hear. Listen to this, but don't listen to me. I don't want any accountability. I don't want any liability. So I'm telling you, listen to me. There are people that have experience, which counts for something. And there's a consensus amongst the most experienced people, which counts for something. Just like my guest today would not make for a very good MMA commentator, would not make for a good quarterback of the Green Bay Packers, because experience and certain aptitudes for certain things counts for something. That's why I didn't have my guest on today to talk about various fighting techniques. I instead had this uh, immunologist on to talk about COVID and the vaccine and the immune system. But uh, I'll do a full episode on pseudoscience and, uh, and the various clickbait that is much, much more popular than boring old reality. So uh, we'll do that soon, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. It's I'm recording this uh, at the end of the year. I've always I, I this is this is my first global pandemic, and uh, I'm not sure I've made every perfect decision. And one of the things is is that I I was like I'm gonna space out my COVID episodes a little bit because there's so much. Um, information out there and maybe even presented better than than I can and I have a lot of imposter syndrome and whatnot anyway and so and so I was spacing it I didn't want to like inundate people with it and I see people as you know some people online are fatigued and then I and I just surveyed my actual fans on Patreon and what they wanted more of and they're like why haven't you done the COVID episode in so long um I, I like hearing from your guests and people like hearing um kind of straight from actual researchers rather than just some of the ways that it's presented on cable news and such so i'm uh, i'm so excited to uh have back jessica brinkworth who is one of the first guests that i had on the show talking about covid way back in the spring of 2020 
and uh, was was the most accurate in <laughs> in how things would go in the fact that she was the least optimistic yeah. <laughs> about the and it, it's like it's hard because like you it is it, it's, it's you know I go on I spend a, I never used to do social media before COVID. Now I spend a lot of time on social media. It's not the healthiest thing in the world always. But um, there, there's this argument of like, you're a doomer and you're a fear monger and stuff like that. Just for like presenting like what's, what seems to me to be like pretty reasonable <laughs> information that bears out and, and ends up making like a lot more accurate predictions and so it's it's just such a messy situation but anyway that's a little spiel it's so nice to have you back Jessica. i'm so excited to be here i am more than happy to spread gloom and doom in the name of public health i mean that's, <laughs> the bottom line is is that it's not you're not doom saying if you're giving your best assessment right and it's about protecting other yeah. people so it's important to do episodes like this i'm Someday I'll talk about sepsis. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, someday right you'll talk about sepsis, which is, right. well, it is, it's, it's related because you can get sepsis yeah. from COVID. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And, so we're, we're chatting sepsis technically. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, I mean, I, I think this is one of the, uh, one of the things that's hit hardest for me was just the idea of, what was that statistic again? The number of people that die of something in like a, a fairly short period of time within like two years of having survived oh, with uh, ho hospitalized yeah post-sepsis syndrome yeah so it's uh it, it's pretty high like most people who have sepsis will die within one to two years and they have a yeah. bunch of other problems that they come out with. They're often um, debilitated. They have motor issues. They have neurological problems. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, it has like real consequences. For those and, that make it to like five years, it's, you know, there's, they still have these symptoms. It's pretty serious. It's amazing. And, and, and this is like on, on this person's like obituary or whatever, it's not, it's, it's not citing sepsis as the, right. as the cause probably, you know, it's probably, probably like they suffered a heart attack or, or, or some other uh, issue that was uh, related to it. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, well, and so that's even true when it's acutely sepsis that kills people. It's true when it's acutely COVID that kills people too. There's a lot of like, I think that's one of the things that's really unfortunate about this pandemic is that there's this fairly homogenous cause of, of death in the of infectious disease death in the U S right now. And a lot of it's being underreported because mm -hmm. coroners are writing proximate causes like lung failure. They had a heart attack, but if, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is mitigate, like mediating that heart attack, then, you know, causes SARS-CoV-2, right. right? But yeah, there's, um, and at the end of the day, what it means is that a lot of problems are not actually being addressed. So. Yeah. I mean, it, one thing I, I don't know how much you know about this subject and I, I don't know how much there is to know about this subject. I, I haven't kept up as much as I probably should, but I had, uh, one of my one of my highlights of 2020 was I reached out to my my uh, science hero Robert Sapolsky and I got to sit in on uh, on a class. I was like, all these people are teaching virtual classes. I would love to 
reach out to a few of my uh, favorite past guests and hear them like actually give a class. And he talked about aging related brain diseases right. and, um, and, and also brain diseases generally. I think there was a class on schizophrenia as well, which isn't age related, but, but that was, that was the gist of most of it. It was very high level. He warned me about that beforehand. I did not have the prerequisite knowledge to be there. I didn't understand half of what was going on. I was very inspired to hear a bunch of young people uh, that sounded like absolute geniuses to me trying to hash out these various complicated um, issues. And so a couple of the last classes before last December were on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And Sapolsky, who's definitely no fear monger, he writes jokes or he writes books about like mitigating chronic stress and stuff. And he he mentioned that COVID seems to be working in some of the same ways potentially as um as uh, both alzheimer's and parkinson's and and uh, as what he was explaining was beyond my comprehension uh level but but i've i've since seen um lots and lots of issues, uh, neurologic issues coming up from COVID long haulers and even people that had a relatively easy go of COVID in, in terms of the acuteness of it, but then having um, long-term issues afterwards. Right. Yeah. So, um, so it's been known for at least a decade that coronaviruses can jump the olfactory bulb, right? So the olfactory bulb you know, at the very top of the nose, part of the brain that extends into the nose, right? The olfactory bulb has always been sort of posited to have very particular and special and not terribly well-defined immune mechanisms to prevent this from happening because you do take in an awful lot of stuff through the nose, right? And so we, we have like upper respiratory infections all the time. Um, and yet, not necessarily long lasting brain damage, but it's known that they can, and there's other viruses that can do it too. And so that's been known for a while. What happens, what we knew before SARS-CoV-2 is that what happens when, um, when they jump is that they can trigger apoptosis. So they can go in and sort of trigger program cell death in neurons that are there. And this has been posited to be one of the reasons why people have like a loss of smell and taste because it's jumping this bulb and or it's in the bulb and it's um it's able to like kill cells and replicate in those cells and kill cells in that region and so that leads to this loss of smell and case, uh, taste but we know that it can be in the central nervous system generally and so that's been known for like a long time i think what we have right now is so many people sick with the same thing that we have like a really, really large cohort of people that have post-viral syndrome and or some variation on it, which does involve, can involve neurological issues. And so, yeah, so what's happening, what's special, what's different right now is that we have something that's highly transmissible and it's disseminated globally so well and there are lots of people that are recovering and have this syndrome yeah it, it so it could so one of the things that happens in alzheimer's is that um i'm not sure how selective it is but there's definitely misfolding of of proteins um this concept of tau tangles so like tau proteins sort of getting all sort of 
tangled up is really important. Uh, it's this sort of disorganized protein um, production and folding that then leads to certain cells in the tissue dying. And so mm -hmm. in the absence of those cells, you have neuropathways are broken up, right? And so, um, so I'm not saying that it's the same. I'm saying that very, very similar thing is is happening when yeah yeah yeah. Not some necessarily of the, the same cells. Seem yeah, to be, right. Not the same some mechanism, mechan but yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's. In, in, do you have do you have any sense of uh, how often people are experiencing neurologic issues? Because it it seems like it seems like lots of people yeah. are losing their taste of their their sense of taste and smell and writing it off as like well oh, you know don't have it's, don't it's have my common. smell and and it, but but is is that is that potentially like it, so, so i don't have an exact number i can tell yeah. you, i don't have well i don't know that anybody has an exact number i don't have a number i can tell you that the loss of sense of taste and smell is significant enough that it's listed as a common uh, symptom of this of the infection so it's it's pretty common um but in terms of the numbers of people that are long hauling, um, so there's some confusion, I think, over a definition of what a long hauler actually is versus who's suffering long COVID symptoms, which would be different from saying persistently having the virus in the system. So, mm. um, so you could split these groups into people who are consistently providing positive tests. There's obviously persistent viral replication going on way past what would be the normal, like, you know, course <laughs> of like a month. I, this is news to so, me, yeah, so actually. There, that is I, something that happens. There are people for which this is, for whom this is happening. Um, but I think that those people are probably in the minority. The, the, okay. the vast majority of the things that I've read on long COVID um, it's fairly heterogeneous, but it all looks like variations on, po on post-viral syndrome, which is so poorly defined that um, you could shove an awful lot of stuff. It's like a trash can kind of uh, definition. You could shove an awful lot of stuff into there. But yeah, so that's so the fatigue and um, mental fogginess, like protracted coughing. Um, other neurological issues it's pretty significant that apparently it can last a really long time there are people that were recording having these symptoms like two years out from their initial infection so uh, yeah. yeah i mean it, it seems it seems like something like brain fog is it, you know i've i've blasted so many drugs into this brain of mine <laughs> in the course of my lifetime and like oh my gosh the amount of alcohol i've dumped in here is ridiculous but it you know so uh, uh, the 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 fact that i've done uh, and then i'm i'm like so, so concerned about covid which i am but it just seems like something that would give you brain fog for a long amount of time the the potential long-term consequences of that seem seem First, like yeah. really pretty serious and they can be <laughs> yeah they really really can be especially if you just think about the basic stuff that you have to get done every day and there's variation right like um so there's you know people that have like brain fog like 
when you have the flu and, you know, people that are really struggling to like remember to do basic tasks and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's pretty bad. I will say, you know, it's also a symptom of menopause and it's also a symptom of Mm -hmm. like a lot of other conditions that where it's been broadly dismissed and frankly, like post viral syndrome overall, it, it's something it's, um, in my personal experience is something that gets sort of hand waved. It's like, well, you know, we can't really treat it. It's this post viral syndrome. Don't worry about it. The the difference Mm -hmm. is that this infection is so significant. Um, and then on top of that, there are so many people with it. It is really important. So what I would say is that one thing you want to make sure you do if you have COVID is that you get a record of a PCR-based test um, mm. in the course of doing it, if, if you can. That I think that's going to be important for all kinds of things, potentially making disability claims or any number of things that might be associated with it. Um, I wish that wasn't the case. But I think that that mm. might be the way that things go, especially because the there's um, gosh, you know, governments do things that are not ideal. <laughs> uh, the, the, well, so this is we're we're recording this on December 29th, and a few days ago, the CDC made a pretty controversial uh, decision that seems like I remember the last time that you were on you were you were kind of complaining about the CDC's um, uh, like in in my view rather naive mask advice which is like if you're vaccinated it's totally uh, fine you guys. it's totally which is like well people that aren't vaccinated aren't going to just like yeah. all right I'm, i i guess i'll be honest and and yeah, keep yeah. my mask I mean, on never and mind like, that all of those drugs were either well they were authorized at the time right not indicated but they were authorized for severe infection prevention of severe infection Ergo, like necessarily, like the data for those those vaccines showed that people could get it and and be symptomatic, but they just weren't ending up in the hospital. So it, it's, yeah. it to me seemed very cold and calculated and not an appropriate guidance when nobody under the age when it was originally released. I'm not even sure anybody under the age of 18 was was vaccinated. Certainly nobody under the age of 12. So that's like 50 million kids that were not vaccinated, and it was like it's fine. Well, it'll be totally cool. I, Don't worry about it. Because I, I, I just, I mean, I, I, I think that there is like a reasonable case to be made in a in a perfect world. You know, you know, it's like a behavioral economics where it's like economists realize like, oh, people don't actually they aren't computers that make these perfect calculations and, right. and whatnot. And if, if that were the case and, and maybe it, maybe it still is in our imperfect human experiences that that, you know, there's there's kind of some amount of control fatigue and and there's a, and, and when there's a projection where there's going to be a dip and it's summertime and people can be outside and grill and everything else that you kind of like hey we're going to loosen this up for a little while and when a wave comes we're going to you know uh increase the you know threat level again and maybe put some public mitigation back in but to me it seems like the toothpaste is out of the tube and there's like no way you're getting people to, yeah, to go back it was an extremely poorly thought out guidance that 
other some other nations adopted and, and other nations just scoffed at. And there was good reasons to scoff at it. For one, it was released like what at the end of May, beginning of June, at a time that you know the bulk of the United States is in temperate biomes. Some of it's not. You know, Texas gets mm-hmm. you know pretty hot. Arizona obviously gets like super hot. There's like desert regions where it would be important to be indoors, like for the protection of like you know in order not to be like heat fatigued and, you know, or worse. Uh, But it was released at a time when a lot of the nation, certainly the most populous areas in the nation could have these outdoor get togethers. So why specify that it's okay to be indoors and vaccinated without masks? And then they put on, it came hand in hand with a bunch of other like relaxing of, of, um, of standards that I felt were not, appropriate at the time. And it's all compensation, I think, for one thing that they did at the very beginning, which wasn't, which was too harsh. So at the very, very beginning, um, there was a bunch of guidances that came out from a variety of jurisdictions that said, if you test, you know, test positive, if you have symptoms, because like nobody could get a test at the time, it's 14 days in lockdown. That's it. No matter what you have. And then when it could be tested, it was 14 days in lockdown, which was probably unnecessarily harsh, right? If you were a contact, it was 14 days in lockdown. That was unnecessarily unnecessarily harsh. So the idea was that the bulk of people will probably express symptoms by day 14. There was evidence in China that by day 14, there were people who were only expressing symptoms at day 14 at that time. And so, um, so that was the rationale for it. And then it was held on to for a really, really long time when it became obvious that most people will become symptomatic in the first like week. So they rolled that back, which I thought was a great idea because like, it was so punishing to people who were say hourly workers. But at the mm. end of the day, like all of this, these are economically guided decisions and that needs to be part of it. But, um, you know, so much of the American workforce is hourly and precarious. And doesn't have the ability to stay home 10 days, not because they don't want to, because they can't, they can't Mm -hmm. pay their bills like that, or their employers won't allow them to do it. And so to bow to employers rather than doing what other nations have done, which is say like, you can't, and you have to pay them when they go home. You you can't tell them they have to come back after seven days or five days or, or whatever. Like, so this thing that the CDC just released, Yesterday or the day before, I, I can't remember. I've been angry about it for, it feels like 48 hours. So that, <laughs> that seems, we'll use that. I think it came out on the 27th. So that guidance says that if you're positive, if you get a positive test, regardless of your vaccination status, if you get a positive test, you only have to isolate for five days if you wear a mask for the next five days. So that effectively what they're they're saying is that masking is so efficient at you know blocking transmission that if you you can leave the house if you're wearing a mask it's going to be fine for everybody else 10 days of isolation technically but five of them are on your own and the other five are just masking and it's stupid because on the one hand it relies on people doing something we already know they aren't doing so we already right. know that a lot of people aren't masking. We, I mean, there's lots of, of evidence that that's the case. One of the most stunning. You pe- can go outside and it, use, you your it, you use your eyes. You can use your eyeballs. But one of the most stunning things for me is that 
if you look at the CDC's count of flu cases for this last year, you can see the bump in how at Halloween, a bump right after Thanksgiving and they're climbing and they're climbing like typical arc for an almost typical yeah. year. And that's happening because people are, the flu has an R not what a transmissibility. One person's going to transmit it to one and a half people on average. Oh, now, that's and and. The, COVID, the first variants of COVID were two for yeah, comparison, 2, 2. correct? And, then, right. and, and and now they're much higher. This with the one, new one could be, yeah, this one could be as high as 10. It, I, I, that's I, almost measles. Yeah, it's pretty serious. So like, that's, we already know if you watch the flu data, you can tell, like it just as a proxy, you can see that if people were doing the things that they're supposed to be doing for COVID, Flu wouldn't be going up like this. Flu is going up like this because people either can't or aren't, right? They either can't do it or they are choosing not to do these protections over this period. And it's going up with the holiday season as as uh, as it does, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. flu is seasonal anyway, but seasonal flu cases are up. So that, to me, is like for the CDC to have this data and then to say, okay, but you guys, it's totally fine. You guys can mask and like, roam around that's fine um but it pleases big business so one of the things that i think is interesting is that bloomberg today was reporting that it this five-day measure lines up almost exactly with the ask that delta airlines made of the cdc when they were consulting stakeholders um Mm -hmm. they requested a five-day limit and so Mm -hmm. Somebody better skill. Yeah, you saw that, right? Yeah. So that was Bloomberg. And then there was a couple of other outlets at CNN, I think, reported it as well. So someone who's more skilled in journalistic integrity and like how, you know, how things are like reported could tell you more about that. But that to me was like really disheartening. (laughs) I I mean, to me, it feels like it, it, it. the the both the mask thing and this it it felt like a little bit of a betrayal and it just made it made it made things very difficult because it was it before that I felt like I could go well just follow some simple CDC guidelines it's the Center for Disease Control right. just listen to what they have to say that's that's the, that's the job we're all working in this system and then and then it's it's just like uh you know i i don't know it just kind of i thought it really ruined a lot of the credibility that that they what which for some people was like already you know there was already a lot of people that were never going to listen to the cdc yeah um, when they anyway when the trump administration started burying data that was coming in on covid under higher ranks of health and human services i was already sort of feeling like, okay, well, if I want this information, I'm going to have to go somewhere else than the CDC. But then I felt a little bit like I can pick or choose and this period of time is ending, right? It seemed pretty obvious that that was going to stop. Um, But the guidance in May was clearly around um, reopening the economy, uh, which is whatever is Mm -hmm. legit, but it was not a good guidance. And then, um, and this is just like, in the middle of this, in the middle of this wave, like we had how many cases this, uh, I think today we have something like, I actually wrote the number down on my screen so I could remember. The 28 day average right now in the US is 4.6 million 
cases mm-hmm. that are live like right now. That's that's amazing. Bonkers. So that's for a total of yeah. 53 million, right? So now we're at numbers yeah. like last year. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is like, it, yeah, it's it's upsetting because this is a, a, a virus that maims, right? Even when you're vaccinated, it can maim. So this isn't, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we've talked about this before, but death is like a super high bar. <laughs> like, yeah, right? so, yeah. They, uh, sur- survival is like is such a when people when people talk about the survival rates and every and first off, all of that is like any one of these people that are like, oh, only for well, you hear really, um, not to whatever, not to pick on the couple like negativity bias screwballs that hound hound me on social media, but you you see a regular. Uh, like meme thing go around this like you have a 99.97 percent of survival and i i tried to explain to this person i was like so what you're saying is that for every person that got that died from covid ten thousand people got covid and didn't die that or uh, for every three people or whatever the the math was and then i was like i worked it out i was like so so if the if eight hundred thousand people died, that means that, uh, by your by your numbers, that means that four times the population of the United States has had COVID and survived it. Right. Can you like? How, but but people aren't aren't great at statistical reasoning. Not that I'm the best at it, but I always had a fondness for math. But if you if you were to ask any of these people, like here's a bag, reach in this it has a hundred balls in it reach in this and one of the balls kills you just reach in the bag (laughs) i don't think i don't think people would want to reach in that in that bag no most people would probably say no what's the benefit (laughs) you could go to mcdonald's and eat with your mask off if you you know just reach in the bag like or you can do like it's the things right the things that we perceive as being like so necessary there is a fantastic twitter thread that i'll um I'll, I'll quote and put you on so that other people can see it on like things yeah. that we've discovered about. I don't know if you saw it, but things that we've discovered about, um, about COVID, which, you know, for example, it, if you're lined up, you need to be six feet apart from oh, one another. I Did saw, you see I that? Saw, I saw, I saw you retweet it. Oh, yeah, I yeah, love yeah. That. That, that was a fun. But it can't that, move that perpendicularly. That was a fun use of satire. <laughs> right, right. Anyway, everything is fine. It, it, it being in an enclosed space that was built before 2020 is like not good. But being in like an enclosed space that was built outside, like those little like restaurant tents between yeah. August 2020 and now, totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of I'm a big fan of cognitive biases and I, and and which doesn't stop me from experiencing them, of course. But but there's a lot of uh, motivated reasoning, of course. And and it's it's weird. These um, these little uh, here pe- people really have a fondness for nitpicking like things that don't make logical sense. So, (laughs) so within that thread, it's, it's like, Oh, Oh, it's 
you you can't get COVID if you wear a mask to the table and then you take it off when you're when you're dining at the restaurant or whatever. Well, people see that and they're like, oh, it doesn't make any sense. And like, yeah, you're right. right. It doesn't make sense. To me, that means don't do indoor dining right. because what's happening in there does not make sense. But a lot of people see that and like, oh, it doesn't make sense. Therefore, let's just forget about anything and not not do anything at all. Did, right. Did you yeah. watch? So good. Did you see Don't Look Up yet? Okay. No, because oh. <laughs> because um, I just haven't gotten to it. I decided that this was right, so this is a bit of a little bit of a story. But I saw Westworld when I was a kid terrified me and then i tried to watch it again in my 20s and i still like yul brenner freaks me out so i just can't like watch it so finally i was convinced to watch the first season of westworld and i prioritized that over don't look up because i was like this is the moment man yul brenner's not even in this one (laughs) so did he enjoy it i did i just got to the last episode of the first season last night and uh it's pretty badass people didn't like season two they thought it was too complicated. I thought it was just upping the stakes. Yeah. I thought I think it's I think it, I think it, I thought it was brilliant. And then I thought season three, they kind of pandered to the crowd a little oh, bit. Oh, that's and dumped too bad. Down yeah, first first season is pretty stinking complicated. <laughs> like I was like, yeah, yeah it gets more complicated. Oh my goodness. Okay. It, and I think a very good way. I mean, when they they use words like heuristics and stuff like that in ways that usually when you hear them on a show, it's like yeah. they're just throwing word salad to make something sound smart whereas westworld actually thought through yeah like, yeah yeah the code looks a- familiar too the way that it's written it um there's a couple of uh coding devices that i use that like literally look like that code like it looks an awful mm. lot like the way that python is scripted there's a couple of different languages that look very similar to the way that they did it there and the other thing that's interesting. sort of interesting about it is um there, so it, Anthony Hopkins lets out a line in the middle of it where he says something like that. It was a way of bootstrapping reality. And I was like, hold up. And I had to sit back and think about like the statistical process mm-hmm. of bootstrapping to like see if it's, it's fun. It's a fun show. Yeah. Anyway, so no, yeah. I have not seen Don't Look Up. You're going to get some very cathartic laughs. It's like <laughs> it's 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 made it's made for scientists. Oh, that's awesome! For sure. I'm sure um, I will. Um, okay, but, so I'm very jazzed but, yeah. about seeing it. But so, um, okay, so let's. So we were back at people. Let's we'll get back on track. We were back at people. Um, kind of like a common a common response is you see something that doesn't make sense, like a restaurant's policy or something like that. And because of that, you go, none of this stuff works. And it's kind of, there's there's a certain like incredulousness to it. And, and there's like some like bystander bo- uh, effect stuff going oh, yeah, on too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. People are just like, ah, someone will figure it out. They'll figure it out. Yeah, meanwhile, yeah. it's like the same people. This is... This happens with climate change where it's like, oh, they'll figure it out. And I'm like, but they're telling you. <laughs> You're responsible. <laughs> like you, you got to take, you know, you got to do something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so. Um, so one of the things I think is kind of interesting is that there is I feel like there is a lot of going along with the crowd. A lot of people use the CDC May guidance or June guidance to say, like, I can do this. When we had information that suggested that, no, you really shouldn't be indoors without a mask, whether you're vaccinated or not. Um, mm. 
but it, you know, it gives people the, you know, there's, there's an authority. This authority said I can do it. That's fine. The other thing that I've found is that I get a lot of personal pushback. You're saying I can't. No, I'm not saying the virus <laughs> works like this. Yeah. I'm just telling you how the virus works. If you want to do this, you know, and think highly individualistically, I guess that's your your jam. One thing I will say is that um, there's a couple of interesting things about Omicron in particular. So let's get the notion of mild infection out of the way. Yeah, is- that, that's that, that that seems like such a bizarre like why even assume that? Uh, and it's just, just like it just seemed like the same wish thinking that I've been watching people exhibit for Yeah. nearly 2 years it, now. I think it's worth noting that when um the first papers came out of China describing this the first 3, so it's Zhu, Wu and Chen, I believe are the first 3 that come out and they're all I think they're all in the Lancet and one of them's in a a Chinese journal specifically. I can't remember the name of it, but anyway, um, those in one of those, and I think it's Chen, they go through the process of describing, we can break this down into like three or four categories. And the first one is asymptomatic or posse symptomatic, meaning so like this, the symptoms are disorganized. People don't recognize them or asymptomatic entirely. Then there's mild then there's moderate and moderate is pneumonia <laughs> and um, and then uh, there's severe pneumonia. So severe pneumonia is on mm. a ventilator. Moderate, you require supplemental oxygen. Anything below that is mild or asymptomatic. You can be pretty damn sick and have lasting consequences with even the flu and not be on supplemental oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the thing that is really um, upsetting is that when they say things like Omicron's going to be mild, this or any any time that this thing has been described as mild, it's really not accurate um, because for people who are going to be symptomatic, uh, it can, that range can be quite far. And in mild and asymptomatic cases, there have been plenty of people that have come up with myocarditis. So that's like heart inflammation, which can be quite damaging, pulmonary fibrosis. There's, you know, um, there are real, and then of course, post-viral syndrome. So the bulk of cases of long COVID of this like big, Mm -hmm. you know, post-viral syndrome, they're mild. They started off as mild cases. They just are mild Mm. cases and it gets cleared and then people are left with these problems. So it's really not Mm. fair to describe it that way. One of the things I think is really interesting about. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that that it's additionally, you know, it's kind of graded on a curve in a way where that's that's primed and influenced by how overwhelmed a hospital is. Too, you know, it's it's that 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 assignment of what's mild. It's like, well, what what's what's your that's that's a kind of a byproduct of hospital triage, right? right? Where it's like when 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 shit really hits the fan, and and you need to prioritize the more severe individuals, then mild becomes yeah. uh, a different thing. A different thing, right? And so if you have cardiovascular disease and you're manifesting COVID somewhere between moderate and mild, you don't need supplemental oxygen necessarily, but you're, you know, you're maybe a little bit worse than you ordinarily would be. You're still at risk for a heart attack. You're at an increased risk for a heart attack. And there are plenty of people in New York City that died because they couldn't get care. Um, mm. 
who died not just of COVID and certainly not just of severe COVID, but died of other conditions, right? And so, yeah, it, it's just, it has this massive impact on everyone around us. So why not be responsible? Like, why not, mm. you know, why not mask? Why not, why not choose to not eat inside a restaurant? Like, why mm. not choose to eat outside or take your food outside? Like, I, I haven't been in a restaurant since the very, very first week of March in 2020. Mm. And that was a very uncomfortable experience anyway. It deliberately mm. went like on a Tuesday. <laughs> it's like, this is mm. going to be the last time. So let's just mm. like, let's just do it. Um, and so maybe part of it for me is that I personally don't understand a drive to do it when the risks are high and not just for me, but like for anybody else, I don't know who I'm going to take this to. And I think that most people, um, if they saw, if they had to actually look at what their actions have done um, for those who have transmitted it unknowingly, you know, if they could see the chain reaction and how that lead, like who dies and who suffers, you know, all mm. that loss, you know, what we have like 820, over 820,000 people have died in the U.S. of this in two yeah. years. Like that so well outstrips any other infectious disease in the U.S. Um, in, in recent memory anyway. Like I think if most people could see that, right, could see someone on a ventilator and know that it was due to their transmission network. They wouldn't do this, right? Most people mm. confronted with that would probably say, okay, I don't need to hold a party for my birthday. Or, you know, like most people would take precautions. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I, you know, I've been in a tricky situation because I've 95% of my income was from live performing before COVID. And I'm the last comedian that isn't touring the last really? i mean there's there's people oh yeah there i can't think of a single other comedian that hasn't toured like this year and um and there's i i did one um weekend um emceeing event that i booked back in may it was in october or it was october early november and it was all um people needed proof of vaccination and um, or a negative test. Funny thing, I was emceeing a psychedelic conference, which has a mixed bag of of people. Sure. And so uh, I, I booked it like months in advance when things were like, I was feeling a little more optimistic, like in May or whatever. And anyhow, um, because of it, I, I saw uh, each, so I was emceeing and bringing up each presenter and I could see they they all had to either have their vaccine proof or their and every scientist um, at the conference was vaccinated and every like wellness guru uh, person was unvaccinated wow. and taking a test, of course. And uh, it was just like very, very predictable. There's a lot of there's a lot of wellness grifting going on um, in all of this of of presenting kind of like, oh, don't listen to mainstream the medical community come and get my product that I got mm. some shady kind of certification um, oh, to give and, uh, like a, a supplement that you like got to pay for and and uh, t 
take every day that, you know, hasn't been in a double blind study or isn't regulated or anything else. And that's, that's going to, it's, you can just take vitamin D or whatever, which vitamin D is fine to take, but it's not protecting you from COVID. Yeah. And it's a missed opportunity because they could, they could instead be presenting like, in addition to getting a vaccine and, and, you know, doing these other ways to mitigate from getting COVID to, uh, you know, keep protecting your health. You should also, you know, work on your nutrition and and exercise more. Terrific. Instead, they're presenting it as an alternative. This is the alternative. To, yeah, that's not yeah. cool. Um, one yeah. of the so to be clear there, I you know, I'm not saying that everyone has to like my living circumstances haven't changed all that much. I did make, uh, I did get to see my parents for the first time in two years. We timed, we timed that very specifically involved testing. It was a risk. I had to buy a porta potty for my car. (laughs) Excuse me. Let's get into that. Yeah, (laughs) this is really fun. So, um, so I'm from Canada. My parents are in Canada. So Canada has some pretty stringent rules about uh, who can be here and what they can do. So you have to pre-register with the government that you're coming across. You have to tell you have to get tested within 72 hours before you cross. Then you have to be tested. You have to be vaccinated. And if you can't be vaccinated or you have a child under a particular age, then you have to all be vaccinated or not vaccinated. You all have you have to test on day one and day eight. And you can't be around people that are over the age of 65. There's all these limitations. You're not allowed to be like involved in like the social world at all. Um, So, you know, so we followed all of these things. And one of the problems for us is that we have to cross at Detroit, but my parents live about 10 hours past that. So um, where are you going to go to the washroom? At least where are my kids going to go to the washroom? So you get questioned at the border. And so we bought... Um, even though we were traveling, we're also, we like timed it. So that we were traveling like middle of the week when no one else would be around very early in December when no one else would be traveling. And, uh, and so we bought this little collapsible potty. I wish I didn't bring it here to show you, but it's actually kind of awesome. It folds up like an accordion. It has like, it has like a little like toilet seat on the top. It's like a trash can with a toilet seat. So that was one of the things that we bought, um, on the off chance that, We'd have to like go to the washroom on the side of the road with the kids. So yeah. Wow. Yeah. So in my case, I have two kids, neither, well, one of which is now vaccinated, but the other one's not. And one of them's at risk. So that's the Dems the breaks, right? It means pooping on the side of the road. That's what she's going to have to do. So that, that was the way that we, we approached it. But, um, but all that said, it doesn't change the fact that we still could have carried it with us. We did everything that we could to make sure that we didn't, but you know, it's always possible. So um, I'm not suggesting that people be completely shut down. I just think that they're, you know, holding a Halloween party is not appropriate. Yeah. Um, And there's things now around Omicron that we know that we didn't know about a month ago that I think are kind of important that we should maybe talk about if you're into it. I'm very into it. Actually, (laughs) you know what? You know what we never did is I didn't have you, Mm. Um, share your background and actually what you it was like oh we just I'm, I'm just like some people might be like 
Oh, who is this lady? I I, I forget. This is the 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 uh, the curse of knowledge bias right there, where I just right, presume yeah. people have information that's in my head. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of anthropology. I'm an evolutionary immunologist. I'm at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and uh, yeah, I I study. Um, I study the evolution of the human immune system, and I specifically focus on severe infections and you know, be asking the question, why do some people get sick and other people don't? Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and go back through past episodes as well. Um, she's been <laughs> a great guest. This is the fourth time now, I think. I um, think, yeah, it's like my third time yeah. to screen. Because yeah, we have a yeah. whole like two hour conversation that didn't. A oh, one hour yeah. conversation that, that we lost. That we never published. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So oh oh first before we talk about um uh, the the new variant, can mm. we um you mentioned myocarditis. That's that's something that's being peddled as a um a large vas- vaccine risk um right now. And and there's a lot of there's like some of the conspiracy videos that go around are like it's like a soccer player in Ireland that fainted on the field and you find out later it's like they actually had had COVID in the past and weren't vaccinated, but they're just like showing footage of this person that was dehydrated and fainted, like sometimes happens on a soccer field. And, um, and, uh, so, but, but there's, it's a, it's a big thing being, um, like Joe Rogan and stuff, people like that are like yeah. retweeting stuff like that. And as I warned you early on, that that guy was going to be a problem through He's all of this. A problem. He, oh my goodness. He's yeah. a huge problem. All from um, news radio to this. It's just sort of stunning. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh it, it's I, I, you know he, he 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 likes he 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 the thing is is he likes fringe that you know that it's like he doesn't just have an archaeologist on his show, he has someone like digging for ancient aliens or whatever. If you're going to be so if you're going to be an art archaeologist and you want to get on a show, you better be like be looking for, for Bigfoot or some yeah. shit. And and so so to get on his popular show that can make some people rich, you kind of need to present some sort of fringe thing. So I think there's even like otherwise fairly legitimate scientists that, that, uh, that either go unnoticed or, or, or present or bias, um, these kind of fringe narratives to get on there. Um, right. Because it's the only way he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't present science scientifically. He doesn't randomly sample a university. He finds people that are presenting this alternative um, point of view or whatever to get on. And it's the most popular podcast in the world. So it has it a really? pretty big impact. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, he has like so he has like I, fourteen million listeners or something. Jesus. Okay, so this is unfortunate. <laughs> I definitely saw him in a television show in the nineties where he made he held a contest where somebody like where people had to eat bull testicles. Fear, but like fear factor. Yeah, yeah. Is that it? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was called Fear was... Factor. Yeah, yeah. And then he had a show where he like looked for Bigfoot and stuff. And nice. uh, oh. and his his num his his most requested guest is Alex Jones. If that gives you an idea of of the uh, nope, uh, that is the, more the, than enough information is. for me. 
Yeah. So what yeah. I'll say is that myocarditis, in most cases, the cause is not known, but common causes are infectious. The most when it is identified, the common causes are infectious and it is like not uncommon there. So there's a couple of really important diseases where it can cause really debilitating myocarditis. In most cases, um, it's a virus that causes it. So COVID, SARS-CoV-2 is definitely one. Hep B is definitely another. Uh, parvovirus is, a, is another one. Um, parvoviruses are cool. We should talk about them another time, but they're they're really interesting. What are they're, they? ancient positive stranded RNA viruses. They're about, they're at least 4.2 billion years old. And, uh, Whoa, they do, they that do was some pretty some cool the things. Forms of life. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So they're wow. pretty, at least they have their roots about four point, not parvoviruses specifically, but positive stranded RNA viruses are at least 4.2 billion years old. And then parvoviruses are some of the older positive stranded RNA viruses. But again, like the way viral evolution works, it's so fast. Like, powerful viruses specifically emerged more recently than that but anyway they are cool we should talk about them another time um yeah certainly hiv can cause it and so can epstein-barr so there's like a bunch of very common epstein-barr is super super common right Mm -hmm. mononucleosis um super common these are all known side effects of that and then there's a bunch of viral agents we don't know anything about um plenty of of bacterial infections that we see in lots of the population of things that constitutively live on you, like streptococcus, can cause myocarditis as well. You know, like, so there's lots and lots of, of ways that this is happening. Um, and of course, like, you can even get it from yeast. Chagas disease, which is trypanosoma cruzae, is another, um, another cause. Darwin probably had myocarditis stemming from Chagas disease based on descriptions mm. of he wrote about himself. So like, it's very, very common, but basically, um, not very, very common, but it's more likely to happen from any one of these things as opposed to a a vaccination. And I know Mm -hmm. that there's rumors going around that it's the most common cause of myocarditis, that mRNA vaccines are the most common cause of myocarditis in children, but it's exceedingly rare. It's an exceedingly rare side effect for something that plenty of things that are already living on those kids could cause. So yeah, I, I look. I looked at the rates. I I don't remember them, but I I I looked at the rates of myocarditis according to the CDC, and and even if they were off or lying or something like that, it would, it would still be. It, it was like it, it would need to be a thousand times. They would be need to be off by like a thousand times or something like that to get anywhere near. Yeah. Uh, what what it's what the actual virus is doing to people. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, you know, we know that SARS-CoV-2 causes it even in asymptomatic people. Why would you risk it? You know, like why, mm-hmm. you know, that's like a guaranteed versus something that had happened to a very small number of kids for which that were in a trial for which we don't have, like, mm-hmm. it's very, you know, like it could be for many, I actually don't know if they were in a trial. One of them was in a trial. I can't remember the, but the rest of the early cases, but at a time when we have a virus circulating that we know causes it. And so one of the things that can happen in these reports, and it can also happen in trial data, is that because of the time it takes to identify, you know, um, you can have a virus, but before you have the load that can be found, like a viral load that can be like identified, you can manifest symptoms. So there's 
a bunch of things around this it, that I think are not. I, I, I went to a, I went to a um, Christmas gathering with my relative. It was like, you know, it was going to break my mom's heart if we didn't go to this thing. The, the issue is, is that my, most of my extended family is anti-vaxxers. Um, and, uh, and I mean, m- most of them have had COVID already and they don't, they don't share things when I'm around because I'm the science guy, but, I couldn't step around a corner without hearing some long COVID symptom like story that they were and it'd be things like I have a I have a cousin that's like 35 in good shape, does CrossFit and stuff. And she got COVID months ago and was like, yeah, the COVID wasn't too bad. It's just I just don't like all the heart flutters that I've had ever since. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's like you want to you should go to a doctor. Like you want to have that checked out, right? right. Like yeah, yeah. if you're having heart flutters, like, because there is, it's my understanding that there is treatment for myocarditis, right? Like it's not something that you just want to ignore. Yeah. You certainly don't want to ignore it. Figuring out what the extent of like, what the extent of damage can be, can be really, really important as well. I'm not a clinician, so it's not really fair for me to say. Yeah. You absolutely don't want to ignore it. One of the problems, uh, a lot of people we think maybe have acquired it because they were participating in heavy activity before they knew they were infected or before they were like knocked down, you know? So I see. Yeah. So there's like, you certainly don't because it can have like long-term depending on your age, it can have like significant long-term ramifications. So that's interesting. So, so you're, so if someone is particularly athletic and taking part in a lot of sports and they get COVID and before they're symptomatic, they're taking, they're exerting themselves. They're, they're potentially um, more damages being done before they're aware of symptoms. Yeah. That's something that can be happening. And, so myocarditis mm. in its like in the act right before it stops or you know and you end up with like fibrosis and, and issues um around that can cause heart failure it can certainly cause a heart attack and so like when it's in progress you absolutely need to see somebody um you know knowing that you've had it yeah. your cousin has disturbing symptoms she yeah. should probably see somebody right yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is one thing that happens. Um, I mean, in the worst possible cases, so it, it can absolutely cause arrhythmias. Uh, in the worst possible cases, right, you can have like, well, what do they call it? Um, sudden cardiac death. Is that the term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when your heart just stops. So, hmm. yeah, it's, you want to, you want to check it out. So, um, S- I'm Necron. Yes, let's talk about that. Okay. So, oh, stepping back for a second. If you want to avoid it, since there are so many known viral causes for it, you want to make sure that you're not around. (laughs) You want to protect yourself from getting respiratory um, viruses, basically. Or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. All right. So there's a whole bunch of interesting things about it. For one, we don't really know if it causes mild infections only or predominantly. Um, It's so transmissible. Uh, And this transmissibility may stem from 50 amino acid mutations in this variant. So compared to the original variant that circulated the, the globe or the original two variants that circulated the globe because we can talk about that, but there's two lineages of, 
of COVID, <laughs> one of which is like not very successful and the other one is global. Um, mm. So uh, that's that's the first thing. There's 50 mutations uh, overall. Some of them are really significant. I was looking at them a couple of weeks ago. A number of them land in uh, what's known as the receptor binding domain of the spike protein. So for COVID to get into a cell, for SARS-CoV-2 to get into a cell, this spike protein has to bind to a cell receptor and then the viral envelope has to fuse to the cell and then the RNA gets shot in and then replication happens and we make lots of little viruses and blah, blah, blah. Um, but that, that binding of spike to the receptor and this specific region that does it, the receptor binding region, that's pretty important. Then there's regions around it that change in shape with that binding. So those are pretty important too. And there's a slew, about 36 of these 50 mutations are happening just in spike and a bunch of really important ones that seem to change the shape are happening in that region. So we think that maybe that might contribute to it being more transmissible, but it definitely does appear to be more transmissible. The last estimate I heard for R not like infectivity is something like 10. So to put that in that's perspective, like, that's like one of the most transmissible things that we've ever seen. Yeah, right? that's pretty, it could be because me, isn't measles number one. And yeah, that's like it's 15. Pretty, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. Pretty high. Yeah, pretty high. So to put it in the frame of SARS-CoV-2 and, and influenza, so influenza is something like 1.6 or 1.7 um, with the original version of, of SARS-CoV-2, like with alpha, it's something like 2.5. So it was already exponential out of the gate. Delta is somewhere just below seven, somewhere between 6.5 and seven people for every person infected. And we thought that was pretty terrible. This could be as high as 10. I don't have the exact numbers. It's pretty bad. Um, so then there's a bunch of stuff that about it that's really interesting just on its face. The first is that people with prior infections, the WHO is reporting anyway, the people with prior infections seem to be at an increased risk for reinfection with this specifically. So um, no idea why that's the case. Honestly, most, human, most humans don't develop a super robust memory response to COVIDs anyway. That's something that's really, but wild type, um, wild type coronaviruses, they leave like a scent, a small scent behind them. Basically, like there's not really robust memory. And, um, and then after that memory dies off pretty fast. So uh, that's the reason why getting vaccinated is so important because we get this like much more robust immune memory in response to the vaccination than we do to the whole virus, which is like so good at escaping everything. Um, so there's this weird thing where this seems to maybe be the case. We know that the PCR tests that are being run that are trying to amplify sections of uh, spike specifically um, that's how the detection works for those tests, that they're effective. But it, the FDA yesterday announced that it thinks that maybe all of the authorized, um, all of the authorized rapid antigen tests aren't, they're not as effective, that they seem to have issues. These are tests that, right, you, the at-home tests that give you like two lines or whatever when you spit on them or swab them. Um, 
There's 42 of them on the American market right now. So I haven't had a chance to go through all of them because I've had other things to do. But I looked at two that were pretty popular. One, Binax, which is commonly used and seen everywhere. And then another one by Celtrion. Both of them uh, use antigen, uh, at least antigen from the inside of the virus, the nucleocapsid. So they identify some part of that. And then Celtrion also, I believe, uses part of the spike protein for identification. Um, when these things were authorized, they were authorized with the idea that a negative is not a confirmation of negativity. <laughs> it's just not a positive. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, but on top of that, there seems to be some issue around sensitivity. Some of this stems from when the FDA and, um, I shouldn't say the FDA, when other, or when the companies were originally running tests and the FDA did cross checks on these things, they were using heat inactivated virus, um, between November and say like second week of December, when they ran tests using these things, they were using heat inactivated virus. When they used live virus from live cultures from patients, um, all of a sudden the detection dropped. So there's a potentially a couple of reasons for that. If you heat inactivate a virus and you break the virus down, a lot more of the nucleocapsid hypothetically is available to be seen like by these tests. And so that's one possible reason. Another, uh, you know, even though virus lives and dies and this stuff is getting shed all the time. Um, but, uh, there could be other reasons too. Either way, they send out a warning. Don't take a negative to mean like an actual negative. And these are tests that be mm. clear already have a pretty wide margin of error. So, um, yeah, that's, one of the things that so one of the things that might be happening is that we had a whole bunch of people that did what they were told they should do. Right. They got together for Thanksgiving, vaccinated, did these tests in advance, showed up and then were positive afterwards because the tests themselves were not detecting it like mm. accurately. So, I mean, there's a lot of people, I think, that are trying to do the right things, you know, and mm. this is just bad uh there's a question of where did it come from so this is something i wanted to address too because i think that this kind of gets to the problem of COVID overall in the u.s and everywhere else so the variant was first identified in south africa um where there's some heavy viral surveillance in the in the i can never pronounce i don't speak afrikaans so i can't um i can't do the the name Gontang, Gotang province, the most populous section or province of South Africa, there's this ongoing surveillance. Um, and it came up with the sequencing, uh, it was immediately flagged and they noticed that they just had a huge number of these cases all with the same variant. Um, so uh, that, I, yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you a question about that? Mm -hmm. I'm very fascinated by, um, Evolution generally, probably one of the um, main topics of the show, but um, I don't know much about um, virus evolution and how, how do you identify what is considered a new variant where it's like, right. you know, like ma mammals, you have speciation once they can no longer breed or whatever. How, how does that, 
how does that work with a virus? Yeah, even that's up for debate because we definitely call Neanderthals a different species, right? But they've certainly interbreed. They've certainly interbred with humans, right? right? So yeah, yeah. So um, so this is sticky because I actually don't know the International Committee for Viral Taxonomies standards terribly well, but um, for variants, I think uh, there has. I actually don't know. I, this, the simplest mm. thing for me to say is I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. the simplest thing. Solid answer. Yeah, but um, but the ICVT uh, has standards that they hold everyone to. So mm. um, what's interesting about Omicron is that at the moment, keeping in mind that viral surveillance is not great, and there's large sections of the world where this isn't happening, at the moment, the closest variant that it can be related to was around in mid-2020. So there's this big six-month gap, not six months, sorry, um, almost 18-month gap between the uh, like a confirmed strain that has been like identified and this thing. So what we think is that like there's no intermediates, at least not yet. And it could be that like as more things are sequenced, these intermediates will be found. But the fact that there's that big of a gap and this thing is so successful suggests basically one of two things, which is that it's been or one of several things and they are all kind of the same, which is that it's coming from some unmonitored location or being. Right. So um, when we've seen stuff like this in the past with other diseases, They've emerged from, say, immunocompromised populations. So like MRSA, there's a certain type of MRSA that can literally just like make a wound <laughs> on its own. That emerged out of the New York state prison system. Um, you know, uh, Legionnaire's there disease, first time it's identified. So good to Legionnaire's. Yeah, the, 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 well, it, it was existing before that from uh was it cooling units yeah. uh, bacteria and cooling units and and then it was uh it, it it was that legionnaires had gotten together at a hotel so they had they had contact tracing basically right. which which d they didn't have um uh before that and right yeah so, so it, and uh, there's also um oh what was the uh oh never mind uh, I don't I don't remember what I was going to say. So it could be from an, an animal reservoir. That's possible. Uh, but I would say like where humans transmitted it to something else and then it reemerged back in humans later. So that that's always a possibility. But the upshot is wherever it came from, it's probably an unmonitored location. It's an unmonitored being or location. Mm. And for it to have been identified in South Africa, I think, has some interesting implications because Delta came out of a fairly poor city that was isolated in Brazil, where like, you know, a lot of young people are in this location. A lot of people are very poor. Um, Brazil has some of the worst rates of tuberculosis infection in the world. And oh, tuberculosis. There's a there's a nasty <laughs> kind of tuberculosis in Russian prisons. I, I yes, extremes started springing out like a couple decades ago or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So X strains of tuberculosis, uh, completely fully antibiotic resistant and exceptionally. Uh, so a good run of TB 
average run of TV is like 12 years longer, potentially mm-hmm. uh, untreated. But th- these can take people out in like a few years by comparison. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And again, Russian prison systems are a really good example of maybe what's happening. So South Africa has a really, really high HIV rate of a large number of people that are untreated. This is the outcome of an awful lot of like wealthy nation fuckery that happened in like the 1980s and 1990s, um, including fuckery from the Vatican. So I think that, you know, when we're thinking about these strains and where they're coming from, they're like, they're the outcome ultimately of wealth hoarding by nations that have a great deal more money and and um yeah so if you want to like prevent things like this from happening you need to treat problems that are on the ground that are leading to like vast numbers of people being you know highly immunocompromised so Hmm. if this were happening in an old age home in canada there'd be like a whole bunch of legislative changes around the management of h of like old age homes um and then you would have like you know, standards for testing and, you know, like make sure everybody's getting fed and we're going to eliminate these other baseline diseases that immunocompromise people so that we don't have to worry about this threatening them and everybody else. Um, That's not the way that we've treated HIV or any number of other diseases. So, yeah. And, and, and so, and because I, because I want to uh, address a common thing that I, by the way, not listeners to this show, but this, this is good to give them information for the type of things that they're going to encounter when they're talking with their own family and, and such is, is that this is, this is, you know, just something that's happening or impacting, um, you know, immunocompromised people or people in poor health, but there's, but that's, it's, it's, easier for a virus to um uh, to attach to someone who's vulnerable but then those vulnerable people can amplify yeah a, a virus and spread like i was I, I i hope i'm thinking about this in the right way i was i was just um reading about hydra virus um a, a little bit in australia um that that this rare horse virus that is probably coming from bats and then and it can't go from bats to humans but it can go from bats to horse and then amplified in the horse and then passed to humans right yeah um after that and and so so in in that same sense that that it that it can then get amplified that's that is that along the lines of what you're saying people with hiv are are more susceptible but then can become amplifiers and spreaders yeah i think that the way to think about it is that a cell is a hell of a resource for a virus a cell is everything And so um, it's the difference between a healthy population would be like a Petri dish with agar and an immunocompromised population is a Petri dish with like enriched agar, right? There's all these cells and you've got fewer in the way of defenses. And so a virus in an immunocompromised person can develop higher loads. There's just potentially more virus they're more likely to be infected in the first place and then there's just that much more virus replicating all the time so um so that's a way of thinking about it when you have a room of immunocompromised people then you can have like expedited 
evolution either by like either random by drift or by um or by selection in one person spreading to another spreading to another spreading to another and so yeah immunocompromised people are um is where you would expect and this was something that was identified like it was mentioned in in commentaries at the very beginning of the pandemic that it's immunocompromised people that we're going to see these like major leaps and changes being made in so uh in in variants and or one of the places. And so therefore they need to be prioritized for vaccination, not just because mm. like it's in their interests to like survive an infection, but because it's in everybody's interests that they, yeah, right. There's global travel and, and right. Exactly. Everything now. And so it's funny because we took that attitude in wealthy nations for like our own citizens and residents. We did. No one is effectively like for decades ahead of time has taken this approach or thought about it in the context of say like HIV in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Like the, yeah. the, no, you know, we, we talk, I should say like we haven't talked about it that way because the reason why we have X strains of tuberculosis stems directly from the HIV pandemic, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's that HIV and TB live in this like, at least for TB, it's a very good relationship um, where if you are HIV positive, you're more likely to have tuberculosis. There appears to be a relationship between HIV infection and super infection with TB where like for reasons I can't remember, but it's been defined TB can better access cells and better take up in the lungs um, mm. and better form granulomas and and get about its business. And so HIV and TB kind of go hand to hand, hand in hand now. Um, and so it's via that that we have these X strains because of misapplied antibiotics, because of you know large numbers of people walking around with TB who are immunocompromised, lots of antibiotics. It doesn't make a difference necessarily. You end up with virulent strains, and you end up with strains that can't be treated. So yeah. Mm. Anyway, so all that to say, like we, I guess I'm not. My statement isn't totally correct because we did take. We've talked about it with TB quite a bit, but I don't know that anybody thought about TB, the, com- the pers- common person anyway, thought about TB from the same perspective. Like I know when I was a little kid, TB was just not around. Like it didn't, you didn't hear about it. Nobody talked you about s- it. You see it in like a old West movie I or something like that. Like, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, so if you were really into, uh, who is it, Puccini, then yes, you talked about it, right? Because what is uh, what's the opera where she dies of? I'm it has not, Musetta's I'm waltz sure. in it. Um, I'm Love so him. uncultured. Love him. There we <laughs> go. Sorry, it. yeah. So she dies of TB, right? And so like it's this 19th yeah. century disease. We have the advent of antibiotics, you know, blah blah blah. But with the with the emergence of HIV, it definitely becomes like a thing. And so um, you know, we've talked about it as reemergence. But people in wealthy nations are largely spared. And yeah. I, so it's I, I easy think, to ignore. It doesn't. I, I think the U.S. has. I think we have a doctor per 400 people or something like that in the U.S. Oh, I, wow. I think I think I think Africa has a doctor per 40,000 people. Um, and. And so if someone might want to do their due diligence and fact check that, but it's, it, I think, I think that's pretty accurate. That's pretty. Um, yeah. So did I tell, but, did we talk about this last time that Uganda has, there was a calculation in 2012 of how many 
how many ICU beds does the entire nation of Uganda have that would be suitable for treating sepsis? And it was 40. That is, that is, laughter's this odd cathartic thing that happens that shoots out of you, even when things are horrifying. Absolutely horrifying, right? uh, Oh my God. It's, it's, that, that is crazy. That's, and so, yeah, these, I I mean, it's. So that's. I started watching this. There's a there's a Netflix show about pandemics um, that came out in like January of 2020. I like finding these books that came out just before COVID or docuseries <laughs> or whatever, because it's it's like it's you'll see them talking about like we're really worried about a respiratory virus coming from <laughs> bats and things like that in this area in particular in these wet markets and blah, blah, blah. This is like. All this stuff, sh- footage and shot, like, well before COVID happened what's and then that, released before COVID. What's that movie, Black Christmas, where you're like, no, don't go upstairs. Get out of the house, right? I feel like if we yeah, were yeah. watching this now, it's like, watch, get yeah, out of the yeah. house. Yeah. And it's, it's because, well, this is part of the, you hear even like John Stewart made some joke about the lab leak hypothesis stuff and it's like it's there's a thing it came out of wuhan and there's a wuhan lab there which is which is we can we should probably adjust talk about lab leak stuff just because it seems to be another way in which um people come up with another way to like deny to be like someone else's fault you do like even if it was lab like no one during Chernobyl was like your guys' mess. I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna stay right here. Um, but but the the it's it's an interesting the correlation and causation thing. It'd be like if uh you know there's a polar bear research station and some odd thing happens to a polar bear and people being like this research station must have been making these weird new polar bears or so- <laughs> something like that like no no that's just where you go to research right, polar yeah. bears that's like if you want to research insects like consider moving to arizona you know right, or if yeah. you want to like research well, scorpions so- so we, I mean, this is not a perfect example, but Lagos in Nigeria has one of the world's foremost viral, la- like level four viral labs in the world. And it's there specifically because this is a region where HIV emerged. This is where Marburg and Ebola is from. It's it's there because it's the place to do this work. Wuhan's yeah. interests in uh, the Wuhan's lab, labs interests in coronavirus are totally legit for a whole bunch of reasons, including that a great many of the ones that have gone around the world appear to have come a well, great many, but um, ones in uh, at least SARS uh, and clearly SARS-CoV-2, but SARS in particular came out of that region, came out of there and possibly Southeast Asia as well. And plus, we know that the bats that are <laughs> so something like I was reading a study from like 2017 that looked at what the f- Stuart et al. 2017. I can't remember where it was published, but it was looking at rodents, primates, and bats. So most there are seven human coronaviruses, right? All of them, as far as we know, come from bats or rodents, with some intermediate host in between, usually, right? So uh, so it was primates, rodents, bats. 20,000 animals, nearly 300 species, 
every every bat they tested, it was something like 91% of all of the coronavirus or SARS-related coronaviruses that they found were found in bats. And 96% of all the bats they sampled were positive for SARS-related coronaviruses, right? Mm-hmm. Bats have a massive, huge swath of the earth that they cover the ones that we connect to this current outbreak in particular, uh, horseshoe bats, which seem to mm. be close. They're carrying stuff that's pretty damn close to uh, to SARS-CoV-2, cover a length of space from like Southeast Asia down into like Sub-Saharan Africa. It's enormous, the geographical I, region. I th- aren't they maybe connected to Ebola too, the horseshoes? Or is that, well, so there's a lot of, of different types of horseshoe bats. Yeah. Uh, yes. So I believe also, I believe that that's the case. There's, it's, it went horseshoe bat to to chimp to human, I think. Is, is yeah, it's I, also been passed through uh, other intermediates, right? So like anybody mm. who's going to eat a bat or is going to travel into cage. There was an outbreak that happened... In uh, I can't remember. It was early two thousands. That was probably dogs that went into a cave. Mm. There were hunting dogs that went into a cave and came out. So it, it can it moves very quickly. Yeah, there's definitely a case that was um, from a necroscopy of a chimp. Mm. So there's there's a bunch of different ones. But um, coming back, there's something about that that just makes me want to eat a bat so bad. It's like that forbidden fruit. Yeah, (laughs) they might feel a little bit like um, like crispy wings, (laughs) (laughs) extra crispy chicken wings. Yeah, I I I joke, but it is that there there are it's it's as an American, it's like it's it's like oh yeah people in parts of the world eat bats that's a, it's something that takes a moment to wrap your head yeah, around yeah that that is that is the case but i mean there there are a, a number of the transmissions for ebola for example are thought to have come from animals that ate bats so it was people mm-hmm. eating the animals that ate the bats yeah and that mm-hmm. is true that bats are sold in wet markets um they are they are sometimes eaten there's some um, there's an awful lot of really cool science that happened right after SARS looking for antibodies in people that were in regions where these where bats are known to be like frequent. And you would find um, SARS related things. Well, hmm. antibodies circulating that identified SARS. So hmm. that could be a SARS related coronavirus. It could be SARS itself. The thing is, coronaviruses really don't mutate that quickly. They have what's really interesting about them is that they've got a proof checking mechanism, which is kind of rare. They have like they have proofreading enzymes. Part of the reason for that is probably I, I it may not be fair for me to say this, but so their genome is really funny that it's a huge genome. It's absolutely enormous for a virus. It's like 30 KB. It's really, really big. Lots of nucleotides. But um, when it's replicating in the cytoplasm of a cell, it's. So one of the things that makes positive stranded RNA viruses threatening overall is that they shoot their their genome into a cell and it's ready to go. Like it's with very minor modifications, it's ready to be read and it's read like it's host RNA. Mm. And then it can just start making stuff, whereas like other types of viruses can't do that. They have to go through other machinations before it can before anything can happen. So that makes positive stranded RNA viruses sort of threatening that's why people are always surveying and looking for them 
Um, but uh, one of the things that's sort of interesting is that for coronaviruses anyway, it's a huge genome. They transcribe about nine sections of RNA in the in the process uh, in the process of trying to make like themselves like replicate themselves and uh it's discontinuous so when they're making their genome when they're replicating their genome they're not reading they're not setting it up to be read all at once and made it's like in a bunch of little sections and so those little sections can get scrambled and that's not good for functions so they've got these proofreading one of the things that helps them is that they've got this proofreading mechanism and as a result they just don't mutate that fast yeah yeah they they, they, they yeah so that that's that, that's that's so interesting that something that seems so from from the point of view of the gene to evolve something that corrects for yeah. mutations is such an incredible innovation to stumble on but then at the same time because it in in our modern world, in terms of infecting humans, it's actually uh, it's actually more beneficial for viruses to not have that that thing right, to, yeah. to mutate more. So one of the things, I mean, so coronaviruses because of that, I mean, so several things because they're kind of conservative, that works to our benefit. This is an exceptional virus, right? In that it's like. Global, dissemin- they, global dissemination, but, you know, most of the other ones that we knew about before SARS, the two that we knew about before SARS also had global dissemination. And after SARS, we discovered another two that caused common colds and they had global dissemination. And this is something that coronaviruses do. They're really good at disseminating. But um, what, what's what's that when, when you call them them um, conservative? What, what does that does uh, that mean? They're kind of thrifty in the amount or the, in the amount of energy that they're that they're consuming. Oh, or? I don't know if that's the case, because they maintain this epic genome like the flu is like half the size. It's huge. It's like if I were going to sit down and look at like big genomes it's for a virus, they're among the biggest genomes there are. So it's not thrifty from that perspective. I mean, more like it's evolutionarily conserved. They're, um, so all positive stranded RNA viruses mutate pretty quickly. But these guys, because they have this proofreading mechanism, they're more evolutionarily conserved, meaning they don't change that much from generation oh, to generation. Oh, I see. I see. The reason why we're seeing all of these variants is because of the sheer number of infections that are happening. Yeah. Um, Oh my God. So there's some other cool things. All right. So, uh, no, go ahead. Could, could I just, in terms of those variants, mm-hmm. say, say you get back. So another, another cognitive bias I see springing up quite a bit is, is kind of this black and white thinking. This has happened all through COVID with any form of mitigation. There's like, some people have an expectation where if something isn't an absolute silver bullet that completely, if masks don't stop a hundred percent of the spread all the time or whatever, that therefore let's just write it all off. If vaccines don't, um, don't completely stop 
every case of, of, of COVID from happening or stop you from spreading a hundred percent, then, then they don't do anything to limit, um, to limit infection or spread. And isn't it, but isn't it the case that vaccines do actually offer some protection from actually getting COVID in the, because you're, you're building, you're building up your immune response so that it's ready to, to act at the first, um, sign of the virus so the way yeah so that's an important point right the only way they work is if you get infected so but they prevent you from so insofar that there's a difference between the virus and covid right so that SARS-CoV-2 is not covid covid's the disease then yes they certainly can so people should be less likely to exhibit symptoms they're certainly less likely to be hospitalized they're yeah. less likely to potentially suffer um, any number of complications as well. So that's that's good. Yes, So, you, what, but it's not perfect, and they never are perfect. And one of the things that's really amazing about this is that the efficacy is so high, but they're not perfect. They're a really good example of how most vaccines require additional protection. So like polio, that vaccine is effective for not just because it's effective on its own, but because we have water hygiene practices that keep it from moving around and, you know, or at least keep a lot of it from moving around in water. So Interesting. So have it, right? So there's, there's lots of things. And you need to take a Swiss cheese approach to this, right? Like if you mm-hmm. layer all of your Swiss cheese on a sandwich so that all the holes line up, you're going to be disappointed. I actually hate Swiss yeah. cheese, so it's not really a great thing for me. But like, <laughs> but you're going to be disappointed. You're just going to like at some point you're going to bite and it's just going to be ham. You're going to be like, that sucks. So, yeah, you need to take layers of protection. In, in in terms of in terms of spread, I mean, I guess it's so. So theoretically, you're I mean, considering that your immune system when uh, when trained and boosted with uh, with vaccines is able to respond to um the virus in a in a more adaptive way it it's it's it is limiting the spread of the virus inside of you right so therefore isn't it also lowering the amount of of potential virus transmission i guess the i guess the other side is if you don't have if you don't have symptoms you may walk around spreading there are lots um, of people that don't so it's that's something that's important lots of people are asymptomatic in fact, yeah. at least 60% of people are asymptomatic. So, and all and all of those people can transmit. And it's getting better at transmissibility. So one of the things um, that appears to be important with Omicron in particular, but it's been the case with Delta, was the case with Delta as well, is that there are switches in amino acid sequence where these uh, spike proteins bind to cell receptors. Um, And we think that, so there's a recent study that came out that said that just one of these mutations is potentially uh, responsible for an increase in binding affinity to its target receptor by over a thousand fold compared to Delta. So that's just one amino acid change is potentially responsible for that. So there's, so that's what we're up against, I guess, is what I'm saying. But that said, um, 
coronaviruses are really good at immune escape. And I think we talked about this before, but there's, um, but I, I just sort of very broadly said they're excellent at immune escape. Um, they really are. But one of the things that we've found is that um, looking just at, we found, uh, Pfizer found, <laughs> looking at, at people that had been um, vaccinated was that uh, early studies with Omicron show that there's like escape from neutralizing antibodies. So these would be antibodies that were developed as a result of vaccination. Um, they seem to be as as bad as eightfold less likely, like or less able to to neutralize Omicron coming in. So um, and Delta was about four point less or fourfold less. So that's like that's some of the reasons why we're seeing like breakthrough is that the neutralizing antibodies themselves. Now that's important. There's a bunch of different reasons why antibody levels are measured and thought about when we think about like vaccination and immunity. Um, for one, A, it's an easy way to measure things. Honestly, they're big, they're easy to find. Um, they're a lot, it's a lot easier to look at antibodies circulating than it is, say, to like look at how T cells are responding specifically. Neutralizing antibodies are important because there's something that can take out an infecting microorganism on its face. Like they can do it on their own without assistance. But antibody levels overall are important because they um, there's a number of other immune cells that can't do anything or are less effective if antibodies aren't tagging the target. And so when we see these differences in, in response between variants, it's important not just because it means like killing the anti like killing the the thing on the way in, but it also like has implications for how the rest of the immune system is going to orchestrate and organize around this infection. That said, um, that's just antibodies. So that's effectively a small portion of B cell responses. There isn't a really clear notion of what's happening with T cell responses and T cells are really important too for a targeted response. Um, killer T's in particular. So there's at least one study right now that suggests that Omicron is no better at escaping T-cells than any other variant that's come up. So right now, these mutations appear to affect whether or not Omicron can escape this like first wave of neutralizing antibodies. That's one of the reasons why Pfizer said a third vaccination is important because they found that with a third vaccination, people had higher levels of neutralizing antibodies and they were more likely to detect and take out Omicron. Now, is it is it the case that that um, will theoretically need to keep on getting boosters or or is it is it that because um, I because I know there's there's plenty of vaccines that work in stages too. like isn't HPV isn't that like a three dose thing yeah, the yeah. first half of your life and then another three doses later on or, or something because I, so, I couldn't get it until I was in my 40s and they just made me do it over 18 months like hep A and hep B which is also done over an 18 month period but yeah I'm kind of talking out of my ass no but, that's totally but, fine but, it's uh they they stage it I think differently for like you know, the young generation coming up that's not going to have to think about cervical cancer. Um, I, I, I yeah. guess I, I guess I'm like, I guess I'm I, I guess I'm probably naively optimistic in, in thinking that because this is an evolving situation that we're still learning more about it. Might it be the case that that there will just be like a number of stages that we need to hit? Or do you think that it's going to be continued boosters for so 
different pathogens and different epitopes on, so molecular signatures on those pathogens are identified by not always defined subsets of adaptive immune cells like B cells and T cells. So we don't always know what subtype is seeing them. And there's so many subtypes that we may not even know about. Uh, and each of these subtypes likely lives for different periods of time. So we know, we've known with flu, for example, that uh, flu vaccination may last 10 years. The problem is that the flu dies, right? It changes so quickly, yeah, right? I, I see. But I there see. are people who, who we see a drop off in immunity after a couple of years. It occasionally happens with influenza. Um, with COVID, this has been consistent. So like since SARS, when an awful lot of energy started going into how long do we see circulating antibodies that identify this, they're gone by year three. And that we've mm. known that for about 20 years. So I think that, you know, I don't know exactly what kinds of antibodies, but with the tests that are used that are sort of broadly grabbing at antibodies, that's that's the case. So I think it's probably fair to say that we will be boosting in potentially indefinitely, indefinitely at yeah. least for now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like it, it, no one no one wants to hear that, but it's I mean, I got uh, my my first one was, you know, knocked me out for like a day um, after my second dose. And then I just felt like a hair off after my booster. And it was easy peasy where I was. I didn't even book an appointment. I just, I got just walked it. In. I, got, yeah, same I got it on day 181. Actually, they had to check the math on it because the, the date was like earlier than, you know, so they had to count the number of days. But, um, but anyway, I don't, I, could care less if I've got to go and get vaccinated every, every, uh, six months. It sounds a lot better than a hospital bed. Um, and also I have, uh, I, I, I have, uh, I shattered my foot years ago oh. and, uh, and, and had surgeries and stuff. And it was a whole ordeal. I almost lost my foot at one point, but it, it's, it's given me, uh, it's given me an appreciation for, um, uh, what can happen when when you have a, a sustained chronic right. health issue um and it's it's like it, it's given me an insight into what aging is is like as well because oh. i have one foot that's like 75 years old yeah no doubt i have a back that's the same <laughs> yeah um but what about what about natural immunity my my editor might a bleep or edit this out because maybe it's personal um but and, and not to i don't like going the route of anecdotes but my goodness people love anecdotes so much um but my my editor's sisters in her early 20s and recently got covid for her fourth time um she's unvaccinated and works at a makeup counter putting makeup on people in oh, dallas texas and and uh i i think i don't think she's anti but i think she's just like young and didn't get around to getting vaccinated or whatever but four times and four times uh, in a fa uh, very face-to-face -face job in a place uh, that has a ridiculous COVID. Yeah. That's, oh, and, poor and, her. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. And but but the the reason I ask is like that. It, I mean, that's just an anecdote, but that doesn't that doesn't give me a lot of confidence in in natural immunity. Is there is there any it, none of hers were awfully severe? I think it like knocked her out some. I don't think she had any long COVID symptoms or anything, but is, is there any connection to um, I don't know enough about immunology, obviously, but the severity of the disease does. Will your immune system kind of remember better theoretically if 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 you got hit kind of harder like your immune system's like we better pay extra special attention to that one whereas yeah. if you have kind of a mild case it doesn't do the same work to right okay so okay i don't know if there's any information that would suggest that if you had say a mild case versus one where you were sort of laid out but not in the hospital so if you were asymptomatic versus if you're, you know, had symptoms um, that suggests that your memory response would be any better or any worse, because honestly, we don't develop great memory responses to it on its own anyway. Mm-hmm. So there's that. I see. Uh, but if you'd asked this question 30 years ago, the response would have been something along the lines of adaptive immunity is everything. And we, you know, things are remembered for different periods of time. Um, Getting infected will confer some kind of immunity. What we know is that uh, with increasing severity in infections and just for certain types of infections, bone marrow gets reprogrammed. And the result after the fact is not beneficial, at least in in the case in the current in the context in which it's been currently studied, it's not necessarily beneficial at all. Um, and so, one of the things about post sepsis syndrome, for example, is that some of that is a, a lot of it's attributed to simply having been in an ICU. So there are things that happen in an ICU that lead to like physical damage, like being on a ventilator does damage to lungs. If you're put on a ventilator, that is like pretty serious business. A ventilator is is likely to kill you so there's you know it's pretty serious to be on one not likely but it it can kill you um especially if you're young and small-bodied like a child you're more likely to take on damage so um but there's other things as well in that if you have a severe infection uh we know that bone marrow will reprogram so that responses are either potentiated later in life or they are blunted later in life and so we know that there's alterations that lead to increased susceptibility to other infections after the fact. So I don't know if that's like a good way to think about it. And I don't know that there's any, I don't know if there's, there's certainly, I haven't seen anything on immune programming. Um, It's referred to as innate immune memory. I haven't seen anything on that. And how, how is it? Are, are, so I see that it seems that the vaccine protection seems better than natural immune protection. And, and, and if you've, if you've had COVID, you should still get vaccinated and there's even more protection. Um, and obviously you don't want to go out getting yourself COVID for the additional protection because that eliminates the point. But, um, but how, how is that, how does that work? How does, how does a vaccine 
produce a better immune memory than the actual virus. So there's a couple of things around these vaccines that are proprietary. But if we're just thinking about, say, Moderna versus Pfizer, um, it's or sorry, Moderna and Pfizer. Uh, those vaccines are basically some salty water and then a proprietary lipid solution that's um, like polyethylene glycol that has different freezing temperatures, depending on the vaccine, wrapped around the mRNA. You throw it into somebody in, in muscle tissue and that polyethylene glycol, that lipid layer will bind to the cell and then shoot the RNA in and the RNA gets read and then you make as many copies as you you know, as deemed necessary by the cell and for as many copies of the mRNA that you, that gets in there, right? So um, one of the things might be the sheer load of what's going in. Um, mRNA in and of itself is immunostimulatory, so there's a therapeutic index for it. Like there's a point where if you shot enough of that into somebody, you would definitely hurt them. Um, mm-hmm. But it's been all worked out for this magical amount where we know this much is effective and it falls below the threshold of hurting somebody. So, um, mm. so some of it might just be the load. The other thing is that, so the live virus that has an awful lot of mechanisms that are designed just for escape. So um, the first is that it's very small. It can get through mucous membranes very easily. The second is that uh, once it's inside, one of the most important ones I think is that once it's inside, uh, it makes use of all of these, of these pathways in a cell that like would ordinarily be used for other things. So it gets in by a process known as endocytosis, meaning it kind of gets swallowed and it sits in an endosome for a little bit. When it's in the endosome, it's manipulating receptors that are in there so that it can't be seen. It shoots its RNA out into the cytoplasm and there's a whole bunch of mechanisms that are in play there so that it can't be seen too. And then, you know, it has to put itself together. Every time a virus puts itself together, there's DNA and RNA that goes like, there's RNA that's produced in this case that like doesn't get used or gets chucked around. There's an excess around. And these viruses make enzymes that clean that up, that go mm. around and get rid of any excess so that it's not detected. So with the vaccine, you don't have to worry about any of that. With the actual virus, you could take potentially even the same load and you might not get the same response because you've got this active mechanism, like an active series of mechanisms honed over some of these things are 4 billion years old. Or some of these like mechanisms I just discussed are shared all across positive-stranded RNA viruses. And, um, and they've been manipulating host cells before they were eukaryotes. So, you know, you don't really stand much of a chance against something like that. Like for, for a host to be able to take something like that out is pretty rare. So one of the reasons why the vaccine is more effective is just like it's a target. You, you make a target. It's like clean, simple. It's not escaping anything. And it's done in a couple of hours. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and as there's, I'm, I'm hoping that this has inspired some people to get their booster um, so. because a, a lot of, a lot of people um, I, I know I have a lot of listeners that are vaccinated and then, you know, there's just, I know a lot of people that have gotten the booster and they just kind of like got around to it when they got, they didn't go on day 181 like, like I did. And, and uh, 
you know, people that take it seriously, but just haven't gotten around to it. But I get asked um, about mixing um, sometimes. And is it, is it, but little bits of stuff that I saw just, you know, some people I follow on Twitter or whatever um, seem to say, uh, think that there is a little boost. The stuff that I've read, it kind of convinced me to think there was a little boost in, in mixing. I had, I had got Pfizer the whole way. And then I was like, Oh dang it. I should have, maybe I should have mixed for the, I kind of want to collect them all, but, um, so here, but yeah, there, right. Yeah. Like, there, like my little ponies. Get them yeah. all. So, um, okay. So, all right. This is a byproduct of the it's a partial byproduct of the U.S. hoarding the vaccine supply from the rest of the world where other wealthy nations had to go and mix. Very, very early on, the U.K. had an interest in seeing if AstraZeneca would work with Pfizer because those were the first two vaccines that seemed to be the closest to approval. And um, and AstraZeneca is the Oxford vaccine, although honestly, you guys threw a couple of billion into its production. So it's as much an American vaccine as anything else. Anyway, um, yeah, so the U.S. hoarded all of this stuff and all these other wealthy nations had to make do getting whatever they could get. And so the approach was for AstraZeneca, which is this traditional vaccine, they rear up proteins and they throw them in and it's a couple of, it's tri or quadrivalent, I can't remember. It's got a couple of different proteins in it. So it's hitting off a lot of different targets. Um, and for Johnson & Johnson, which is hitting off the whole of the, what is it? The whole of the pre-fusion mRNA sequence for spike protein. So the whole, whole of the spike protein is in there. Um, whereas Pfizer and Moderna are targeting slightly different sections with some overlap of a very conserved, tiny, tiny region of this spike protein. The approach was, what if we get this vaccine, these two vaccines, which are of lesser interest? Uh, the efficacy was good, very good, but lower than the other two. And they take longer to produce. That, that's the most important thing is that they take a really long time to produce by comparison. So a lot of these nations snap those up and then set up a scenario where you're vaccinated with those. And then if we get Pfizer and Moderna in, you can be vaccinated with that. There have been trials running in the UK from very, very early on that showed that Pfizer and AstraZeneca worked well together. And in subsequent um, trials, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna appear to be an effective combination as well. But what happened in places like Canada, where they had to mix them, is that they found that uh, when they were surveying people after the fact, they found that they had the antibody drop off just wasn't happening as quickly as it was if you just hit someone with just Moderna or just Pfizer. And so there, there does appear to be a benefit in mixing. For the time being, mm. the FDA doesn't have an opinion <sighs> on mixing. Because that's what yeah. I've been telling people right, to, yeah. to do. <laughs> the FDA doesn't, as far as I know, have an opinion on whether or not Pfizer and Moderna are worth mixing, although there has been some commentary on that. So it's possible. I mean, I would assume... I assume a couple of different things. I think we're still in this very delicate period where the vast majority of the world is not vaccinated and has no access to vaccines. And so there's two ways yeah. to deal with that, right? The first is you can and should and should appeal to your politicians to ask for the patent rights to be repealed at the level of the WTO, of the World Trade Organization, so that nations can make their own. Mm -hmm. And there, there's plenty of, of, you know, like Lagos, for example, 
has this fantastic, you know, level four facility. They could in Nigeria potentially make this and distribute it to nations around. And this would be fantastic. Right. Um, but the, I think the other thing is that, um, so you don't want to hoard, but I think the other thing also is, um, whether or not it's, it's effective to collect them all. So I think in those two combinations, we know it's effective in, in uh, Moderna Pfizer, you'd have to like the state, the way I would do it would be, um, you know, get your booster for your, your, the one that you started with and then potentially get another booster for the other one. But I don't know that that's necessary. They overlap in sequence pretty strongly. And, and if there's, if there's the antibody decline, people, people are going to think I'm crazy for say the, the, the people that are listening to this just furious with me right now for being a big pharma shill and this and that, (laughs) like I'm like, Bill Gates is signing me checks every time I tweet about COVID or something. But um, uh, to my tiny following, as, <laughs> as as like all the conspiracy peddlers are just having having a field day right now and making there's like people like Russell Brand and stuff his videos that do conspiracy stuff just mm. do so much better than others and this like shape. JP Sears guy is like he sells like anti-vax, anti-falsy like merch at his comedy shows. It's, it's just like wow. the dumbest stuff I've ever seen in my life and has so many has gained about a, nearly a million followers since since taking this path. And then after his after his videos sells a supplement um, to increase muscle mass. And he's clearly taking steroids as you can see. Yeah. On his skin. Um, but so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bad actors out there, but anyway, um, uh, but me talking to random people that I find, I'll get accused of being some corporate shill. Uh, but is, is there a downside to getting boosted more frequently as you say there's antibody decline and i live in a country that has uh an abundance of vaccines um yeah it, I, I would say that we don't know um i would boost on the schedule that a number of jurisdictions are suggesting they differ a little bit by jurisdiction based on availability but i would boost on I would boost on the schedule that's currently recommended, which is like right now it's eight or nine months after your full vaccination. Yeah. Right. So um, that's here in Canada where you could wait months to get a booster. They're necessarily boosting at like a longer stretch, but the vaccination took a longer stretch too. So for us, the doses of Pfizer and Moderna were available at the trials optimal times, right? Which was like 21 days and 28 days. In Canada, I can tell you that they were waiting four to five months between those two doses. And that's something else that might be contributing to this longer lasting. So it's going to differ by jurisdiction just because the dynamics of vaccine rollout differed by jurisdiction. Hmm. I don't know if it's necessarily safer to get them or even safe to get them earlier. You know, so I, I would go with whatever is being done where you are 
Are you excited about any treatments coming up? First off, we should talk about ivermectin because a lot of people think that they can not get vaccinated and count on ivermectin when they need it or you're even taking yeah. ivermectin ahead of time. And I, I got uh, this, this was uh, again, I I had heard about ivermectin. So what what happens um, is is that like um, these the stuff will happen on like web forums and stuff and conspiracy people or whatever will get wind of it or these wellness people will get wind of it and then nine months so i'd heard about like ivermectin back in like fall of of 2020 uh, it was something like being explored and because there was like medical sites where people were like well if this does end up being approved i want to be sure and have some and there might be a run on it so like people that would nerd out about stuff would would find these things out anyhow then nine months after the fact uh like this this podcaster um scientist brett weinstein um did this emergency announcement on joe rogan's podcast and uh and uh, about ivermectin and he's and he's he's a He's just a grifter that that presents himself as like this freedom fighter. The, he got expelled from academia. And, and so he's wow. you can't you can't just go on again. You can't just like be an interesting person with interesting things to say. You have to have done something like you're fighting the system in some some way. You can't just like be some boring person dealing with the bureaucracy of the system or whatever. Right. Can't just be a um, cog in the machine. Right. And and so. And so since that time, then it's like everyone's uh, and then Aaron Rodgers, the Wisconsin quarterback, who gets, oh. gets his gets his covid advice from Joe Rogan. Yeah, and uh, his quote he, was just just killed me. I don't understand why the NFL will not consider my research. And I was like, the NFL won't think about my research. either. Yeah. That's fine. Oh, my gosh. And and so there's but but my so uh, my my take on it is that there was that people doctors were throwing whatever they could at it early on because it's it would be strange if a anti-parasitic drug worked for uh as an antiviral right but but there was there was some and there was some fudged data early on with it but it seemed like in some regions there was there was actually some improvement over controls and and what happened was it's in areas um in like india that have high parasitic loads so people were having worms yeah, and then yeah. treating it'd be like if you were starving and you got covid and someone fed you you would do better than a starving person that didn't get fed yeah, and exactly. had covid but but food isn't actually a cure for covid it's right. just yeah, it's so, just better to so ivermectin treat other things ivermectin and specifically ivermectin for humans because there's a difference between the vet drug and the human drug on its on on its face there's always a difference between vet drugs and human drugs they're just indicated mm -hmm. differently because they're the standards for approval are different, so they are different drugs. But the uh, human ivermectin has been applied for years in very impoverished regions because of for deworming, right? Because being having a high parasitic load is like indicated for all kinds of other infections, including viral infections. And so one of the approaches to like even like any number of 
of viral infections, including like polio and tetanus and things like that has been, um, wait, tetanus? No. Oops. Okay. Well, polio, we'll go with that, um, has been to apply um, ivermectin and, and measles and any number of other diseases has been to apply ivermectin because you improve uh, someone's health overall in the process and also the other thing in, is that, in a region that's like near the equator yeah. that has a lot of parasites that, that has, has parasites. sanitation issues and well and, so another another thing that like helminths and helminthic worms in particular are very very good at they're very very hard to get rid of on your own and the reason is because they just exquisitely manipulate host immunity at a cell by cell level they can express their own cytokines. They're little animals. They can express their own cytokines. They can and pass them off as being human. They mm. manipulate anti-inflammatory responses and pro-inflammatory responses so effectively that they change cell signaling. And so, um, so to have them means that, like on a cell by cell level, you have this. You just your intrinsic cell defenses are down. And so, yeah, to get rid of them is a good thing. Right. So all of that. If you have worms, you should get rid of worms, whether COVID or anything else is around. I mean, or, those or, or who are not. super into the hygiene hypothesis would say maybe otherwise. But I think that there's a, yeah. a balance here. Having worms is not a good thing. Having worms. I mean, everybody has a certain number of worms, but like having worms that, you know, are like asthma and allergies versus, you know, having tapeworm that gets into a leg or something. I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? Like necrosis versus, so there's plenty of reasons, reasons to not have worms. So ivermectin for that. Yeah. And it improves the health overall. And therefore you're more likely to be able to like set up a reasonable antiviral defense. Um, I'm very excited about the idea that Joe Rogan won't have worms. Especially if he had been yeah. eating raw bull testicles. I think yeah, that this yeah. is like, I'm, I'm very excited yeah. about that. I'm not so excited about the draw on horse ivermectin in the vet med uh, market or any number of other things that may be uh, a downside of this. But it is a hoax. And so, you know, yeah. don't use your aquarium cleaner. Don't inject bleach. Don't. Oh my eat God. There's a, there's a new one where people are. I, I don't know how much this is happening, but the because some people are bending to vaccine um, mandates to um, keep their job and getting vaccinated. Now, there's a thing on TikTok where people are offering solutions to get the vaccine out of you. And so not so possible. They're like taking like odd <laughs> yeah. toxins and baths and things and yeah, 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 weird. not possible. So, uh, so just just to be real clear about how this works, right? That that lipid that lipid layer binds to cells almost immediately. We're talking about seconds before it's inside of a cell. And then it's the RNA is in there for maybe two hours. By four hours, it's gone. One of the great yeah. things about RNA is that it like disappears very quickly. So, well, um, you know, that that's the sorry, I'm a bit of an interrupter when I get very excited about this, <laughs> um, but and I'm always excited to talk to you. But they one of the um, it, that, that is a thing where, where people I mean, I guess we've talked before and, and it has happened in the past where there are um, uh, like 
rare side effects from vaccines that don't express themselves necessarily immediately. But it, but it is when people are like, well, you don't know what that vaccine is going to do to you like 10 years. It's like the vaccine's not in me. It's like it disintegrates like really relatively yeah, yeah, quickly. Yeah. Right. So it, is, is there well, that's any the case for all of them? Yeah. So that's <laughs> so, like so. So on the on the topic of what it might do, um, you know, we have there's a limited number of very, very rare side effects that come up with mm-hmm. certain vaccines, right? So Guillain-Barr is probably the most famous of these, um, which was something that's uh, potentially implica- uh, indicated for these vaccines, but it uh, is something that happens with like influenza is where it was first um, In like the discovered. 70s or something like that? Yeah, when, and it When causes- they did the big push? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that that was I, I think that was that was one of the first like anti-vax times too, right? Because it was like the the because there was a big there was a prediction that the flu is going to be much worse than it ended up being, and so some of the like rare side effects were uh, the kind. Oh of, yeah, well, because there was a very very serious flu that went around in 1968, right? The Hong Kong yeah. flu circulated and killed people, and it was like pretty bad. Um, yeah, and so there was after that there was this big push for like. Um, for vaccination and, and, and things of, of that sort. Mm-hmm. So Guillain-Barr um, happens with flu infections anyway. And it's very, very rare for the vaccine to trigger it. But it it's brought up, it's, in, it's indicated because like if you've had Guillain-Barr, there's the thought is that like you are likely to experience it again. And it's it causes paralysis. It's, you know, it's a serious condition to have. Mm. Um, that said, exceedingly rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of things like autoimmunity, I can't bring any to mind mm-hmm. that are known to, to trigger autoimmunity. Um, mm-hmm. so then stepping away from that even further with polio, with the polio vaccine, polio is a live attenuated vaccine. You shed it similar to the rotavirus vaccine, which is not on the U.S. schedule, but it's on the schedule of a lot of other nations, Um, you shed it. And so in the case of like the polio vaccine, there's a certain number of escape mutants every year that end up in waterways. And so as a result, there are people who get polio because other people are getting the polio vaccine. Um, But interesting it's like a couple of hundred people like worldwide it's not it's not very Mm -hmm. high and then let's see i'm just like trying to run through the rest of them here there's um so one of the things that happened with hpv the hpv vaccine if you haven't had it hurts (laughs) like i i hate to say it because i don't want to discourage people from getting it the the notion that cervical cancer will be a thing of the past is like so overwhelmingly awesome that yeah. I encourage anybody to get it who who can but man it burns it really burns and as a result um there are people who develop what's called a vagal response and so this is common for like anytime somebody sticks you with a needle no matter what they're doing it for people will have this like vagal response where they like faint or they mm. you know they may have other weird little neurological disruptions but it's about anxiety it's not yeah, yeah, like a kind of a nocebo effect or something. As if, yeah, exactly. Of, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of, of what this thing can do, we know that the responses die off after three years, and we know that the RNA is gone after two hours. So mm-hmm. 
Um, you don't really have much to lose. Yeah, right. I hear the shingles vaccine is a brutal one. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, I had a I had a biologist friend who who uh, um, Barrett Klein. He's been on the show a bunch, and he he got it recent, but he had gotten shingles as well um at some point and that was way worse yeah he he described it to me and it sounded really bad um but he he got vaccinated and he said it was he said it was much worse than the um uh you know the the um uh the immune response to getting the covid vaccine and stuff which which i mean it's it's not it's not insignificant to uh to for people to, um, you know, not like that they have to feel off for two days or whatever, especially yeah, we're kind yeah. of, you know, we're not, we're not the best at, I'm, I'm not the best at long-term <laughs> thinking and, uh, I, I haven't made every perfect decision in life. And so I, I get it. And, and it's also like, you know, I was having a discussion with, um, some people are like, some people can't afford to take two days off of work or whatever, which I mean, you can always schedule on the weekend. And two, I was just like, well, those people that can't afford to take two days off of work because of a vaccine certainly can't afford to take three weeks right. minimum yeah. off because I mean, of COVID, was- can't afford an $80,000 hospital bill. Yeah, um, yeah. But this you know. is a thing where like there's, there needs to be regulation around like people being permitted to go. Right? There are employers yeah. that are like that. There yeah. are employers who have very clearly an interest in guiding what these guidances will be. Right. I mean, yeah. so there needs to be something like that that allows, or you're going to have to start like bringing people to vaccinate your staff into mm. into work. Yeah, I agree. Oh well, so then there are people who are allergic to eggs. This is a concern. So a mm. lot of, especially viral vaccines, traditional vaccines are raised in um, chicken embryos. And so, yeah. And albumin, human serum albumin and egg whites are basically all albumin, uh, is used often as a stabilizing reagent in vaccines. So people who are allergic to eggs and certain types of mm. adhesives can't get vaccinated, you know, so that's, that's, there's, there's things like that. And of course there's like certain immune conditions where you can't get vaccinated as well, which is all why it's all the more important that if you can you should, yeah. right? Um, go ahead. I, I I know I know that I don't want to keep you here all, all night because I, I always think this is our this longest one. Right? This is the we're, longest one. Do you want to break? Two hours. I mean, I, I I love talking about this <laughs> stuff, so I'm happy to have. But you need to go at some point. Um, I oh shoot, did you need to go already? Should I let you go? I or do you have a couple more minutes? Soon because I'm sharing the wall with a very young child who's going to go to bed soon. But yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's um, totally fine. Let, let's let's wrap up. So, one going back to I brought up ivermectin because legitimately I wanted to, people to know if there are um, treatments that you are excited about. They, I heard like the oh, Pfizer yeah. pill and and some other things, and and also so so I have. Uh, I I got this I got this Fitbit around this nice. time last year that I told you that I, I and I in a Stanford study that like alerts me to immune changes or whatever so theoretically I would possibly know if I have covid before I have symptoms and get tested and everything is there I I know that that treatment can change at various stages in in most illnesses. If if someone has a covid test and they test positive uh what what do you recommend doing? Oh, go isolate. 
but in terms of how you treat yourself in terms of in terms of is is there is there anything available yet that you can get like so you know um, get a jump on it and get something from your doctor or anything anything that's uh, close to being delivered so if you test positive and i believe in most cases you would need a pcr test for this if you test positive and you have um say high blood pressure or you have diabetes there's a number of different like uh conditions that depending on your state qualify you to get uh, i believe it's depending on your state qualify you to get monoclonal antibodies or antibodies convalescent sera and um you can have reactions to that depending some people have reactions but uh but generally speaking that's that's the first like most readily available thing that can that can um be applied the pfizer pill um FDA was talking about some of this today and I meant to look into it and I didn't get a chance. I'm not sure if it's even on the market. Mm. Uh, they had some release on it today. So there's some sort of hang up there. And in terms of the, uh, in terms of everything else, super, super, uh, strongly recommend the best thing you can do is to take it easy. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it is to like rest and, wait it out and if your symptoms get worse you need to go to like get supportive care in the hospital Mm. um what i would say about stuff that i'm excited about in the future so um there's been there's some trials right now to take to repurpose hiv drugs for the purposes of like trying to limit replication that this might be something that could be effective. And I, I don't know if you know how this works, but um, heart therapy, which is has been applied to HIV since 1997, is the reason why whole generations of people think of HIV as this sort of like chronic disease that nobody has, uh, <laughs> at least in, in, in the U.S. Um, it is be, uh, takes a crack at, it's a two-hit system where it takes a crack at like viral release and also aspects of viral replication. And so um, there's like some stuff there that I think could be like Hmm. really, really, really interesting to hopefully would would work out. But the best thing right now is that and then if you're in the first couple of days, remdesivir is another option that can be applied. And for people who are who have risk factors like that's the that's the approach right now, as far as I know, is remdesivir monoclonal antibodies. And that's that's what you can do. That's better than uh, what most people can do if they were to come in with a severe infection of unknown cause, mm. which is what most sepsis cases are. Um, there's one thing I wanted to talk about that we were talking about, and now I've forgotten all of the things associated with it. So I just brought it up and literally forgot as I was talking. But there's something that we were talking about and I completely forgot what it was. Um, Damn it. And I didn't get to hmm. say what it was that I thought was important to say. Oh, well. Maybe it'll come to you. Um, I, I I wanted to quick ask, what what about this current um, peak with the, the holidays and everything in these uh, very high numbers? Do you expect a dip um, again around February or, or so this this time around? Or does um, does the Omicron just completely change the game? I don't like to put the... Um the emphasis on the on viral mutations so much because at the end of the day it transmits because people are in a position to be transmitted to mm-hmm. or to transmit to somebody else right so i think that 
if we were following all the rules that we're supposed to be following, we wouldn't be seeing flu cases going up. And so Omicron is very, very transmissible and, and it is a threat and it, mm-hmm. we shouldn't take that lightly. But at the end of the day, it's human behavior that's driving a lot of this. So what I think. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I think that our decline is going to look different this time around. So the holidays we're going to see, I mean, clearly this is how it's working in in the U.S. now, right? Which is we're going to see this ramp up over the holidays and then we may see a die off. Last year, it started to die off into February and then it got very, very low around, you know, April, May. And part of that, though, was that there was this uptake of vaccines so that mm-hmm. by like May, something like 50 percent of the U.S. population had been vaccinated. Um, that's not going to be the case this time. So that beneficial hit is not going to happen. And so I think we may be looking at a elevated levels. We'll see a decline, but it'll be elevated. And so, yeah, I don't know if we'll have a sweet May, June. Let's all have happy barbecues. I'm hoping that's the case, but I think that it, the decline is just not going to be as great. And it's going to keep rolling like this. So <sighs> I wish it was nicer. I wish I could say nicer things about it. One thing I will you've say. Been, you've been correct every time <laughs> so far. So I mean, um, I, yeah, I, I'd, yeah. I'd like to be wrong. You know, I, yeah. I would love it I, if, if suddenly it, it dropped off and it looked exactly like it did last year or better. But I mean, what if, what if, uh, I, I mean, it also seems like. Uh, like the vaccine rates, if, if there was some change where the vaccine rates went up because I, I don't know, but the, the measles vaccine, every time that drops below like 91% or something like that, measles starts popping up a couple decades um, later because of the uh, susceptibility. And then, and so, I mean, it, it seems like, it seems like without, a huge percentage of people getting vaccinated like we're really in for it um no matter even the vaccinated people and yeah uh, i mean so hmm. i would remind you that like kids four to zero still aren't vaccinated so yeah we still have that hump to get over right um and i think things might improve might improve. They will improve when that age group is is vaccinated. That's being delayed mm-hmm. because the trials so far have not been have not been great. But once w- that group is vaccinated, well, so Pfizer found that the dose was probably not effective. Um, mm. So they have to run the trial again. So mm. we're looking at another two months, which is <sighs> you know whatever it's coming. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know. I, it's but I think that yeah. like. Like I said before, there's there are no before times and we're going to have to come up yeah, with ways yeah. to like work around this. And so um, and there needs to be more protections for people so that we can. Yeah. Gosh, I wish I could remember the other thing that I wanted to say, because it was like super awesome. <laughs> it was good news. It was good news, uh, I thought. Uh, yeah, but I just can't was, let me remember. You were excited about something coming up, like we were talking about treatment stuff, and, and yeah, you yeah, it you had something excited. to do with that. Yeah, mm. for sure, but I don't remember. <laughs> so one thing I will say that's depressing yeah. that we can get close to ending on is that um, yeah, the notions that Omicron are, um, is mild is is a little weird. The um, yeah, 
So the current stats are like kids appear to be about 20 fold more or 20 percent more likely to be hospitalized with Omicron. And there's some suggestion mm-hmm. that it might spend more time up in the bronchus than it does in the lung. But um, and that might have something to do with its structures for little kids are really small. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so it's. Yeah, so we're talking about when people talk about a pandemic of the unvaccinated, it includes all these kids that aren't even eligible. And so um, and so just to when you're going out to think about those sorts of things, right? Like what if you're going out to a place that requires um, uh, vaccines to be shown? And and so 100 percent of the people in, say, a venue at a show are vaccinated. Like does does that does that make does that make you, you feel safe? I mean, no, it doesn't make it doesn't. me feel safe, but my my circumstances are a little bit different. Right. So I right. guess like insofar that a bunch of very healthy people who are vaccinated are in a room together, all 100 percent of those people are vaccinated and 100 percent of those people can pass this virus back and forth and can pass it then to people on the outside. That's a bummer. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're all vaccinated and they're all masked and they're distanced as opposed to being crowded all in together, then that's even better. If somebody somewhere sometime would make some infrastructure changes around ventilation, that would be awesome. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that this is the level that we're at now is that we have to think about like filtration systems. Like it's not enough to just keep forcing people into a position where like to make a livelihood, we have to cram people into a room and say, well, you're vaccinated. This is good enough. So, I mean, there needs to be these other changes. <sighs> Not to make you feel bad. I mean, I think that this no, is fine. No, no, it's it's fine. It's just like planning out my life as a, no, no, it's just like, uh, yeah. as a so stand-up I, comedian. I'm yeah. like, uh, I think I'm not a stand-up comedian anymore. No, 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 no. I, I think, think like, if you want to go, if you want to do that, I think it's fine. I think the the responsibility is higher than this. Is at the state level, right? Yeah, so it's yeah, not yeah. okay to say like, okay, restaurants can reopen. Let's put everybody in plastic tents out on the sidewalk. It's it's okay to say, okay, restaurants can reopen, and here's the money to like get a HEPA filter, you know, this is, here's, here's how we're going to structure things from now on. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah. And I think, you know, with comedy clubs and stuff, I know that like people being together matters, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I mean, know. I mean, the th- the thing is, is it? It's like it's not just about safety as well. If I if I didn't if I didn't care about people's safety at all, there would still be a consumer confidence issue. And I'm doing I'm doing I do I often do science shows too, and so the people that are science enthusiasts are going to be less interested in packing shoulder to shoulder with strangers indoor, right. even if I want to. Um, make money doing that. Well, I think uh, that, so there's other things that I mean, could, okay, so it'd be great if there was like all these changes to buildings that allowed for better ventilation and and, and heat at the same time and et cetera. But, um, you know, with improvements with rapid testing, that's another thing that could make it, like, that could make a big difference. If people are able to test themselves frequently why aren't they delivering masks, N95 masks and tests t- 
to every single person's door immediately. Like it doesn't、oh. seem that expensive. Yeah, not to, to throw her under the bus, but Jen Saki said the quiet part out loud a couple of weeks ago, right? Which is that we don't want to pay for 150 million tests for every single home. But you're gonna pay for it one way or another. You're、yeah. going to pay for it in your healthcare system. I mean, it's like it, it's it's like not wanting to pay for an oil change. Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but do you want to pay for your engine to explode? Right. Yeah. I mean, at some point, we want to keep the transmission, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like, I think that there's going to be these technological improvements that'll in, that'll help with things. But there's no way that we don't that we get out of this, or at least to some semblance of normalcy, that's workable without major adjustments being funded by government agencies and without、mm-hmm. you know. A doing away with the notion of individualism, and if we can't, you know, we need to to get there. We need the CDC, for example, to、yeah. write respectable, reasonable guidances.、Mm. Well,、so. you've been a terrific guest. If if you think of the if you think of the thing,、um, one, you can just. Pop back on for a couple minutes to remind me sometime, <laughs> or just email me and I'll include it in a like, outro or something like that. And by the way, she wanted、like、to say blank. Yeah, yeah, it's it's up to you, but it it doesn't matter. But this is this is a fantastic conversation, chuck full of all sorts of、uh, wonderful information, and、uh, I I like to I. I would certainly rather hear the truth of things, even when it's、um, <laughs> not always pleasant, than to live my life in denial of them and、oh. pay the consequences of that later. So, thank you. Oh, hey, no, no problem. I'm happy to be here anytime you want me here. Let's check back in in the spring. Sounds good. Yeah,、right? let's do、That'd、that. Be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Springtime. All right, Jessica Brinkworth, everybody, and thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. Stay safe out there. Get boosted. Hope you're all well.